We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know. Welcome back, Gator Nation, to the podcast. I'm Alan Williams. Of course, I'm here with James DiVirgilio. We are your co-hosts here. Man, that was a little bit of a rough one on Thursday night. Not the outcome we were hoping for or the performance, I'm sure, from... That goes for the coaches and the players and everybody else. We're going to get into all of that, get you ready for McNeese State, of course. We've got a lot of thoughts coming your way, a lot of fun things to talk about and discuss. James, how are you feeling over there? Man, I feel not as happy as you sound right now. <laughs> you, you use the word a little rough, and perhaps I would use a much stronger yeah. adjective. But I appreciate you opening the show on such a positive note. We want to make sure that everyone's... We're still glad to be here. Yeah, really still are, and really can't wait to talk ball, even though we're going to dive into our actual feelings about the subject and what the the hard, calculated facts and analysis say about the subject as well. Uh, but I am I am stoked to talk ball. This This podcast is a gift for Alan and I. It is cathartic after losses like the one on Thursday. Um, somehow coming on here and speaking to all of you and, and discussing this game sort of virtually with you is is medicine for my football soul. So I'm looking forward to diving into that. As always, if you like the content on this podcast, follow us on social media. Sub to our YouTube channel where we will do weekly film reviews starting this week. Clara the Commission Her will be taking care of the film edit actually this evening, which is Monday. And it should be up early this week. Uh, due to Labor Day and a bunch of other stuff, it just took some extra time. If you want to support our efforts for this type of content, you can become a patron on Patreon, where you too can drop us a dono each and every week, all throughout the year, or once a year, or one time. Whatever you prefer, all amounts are accepted. And we, of course, love our patrons. Shout out to B-Red, who is back in the saddle, Alan. He produced this week's... Yeah, so I'm on the dot getting it done. ...shot sheet for us, so always good to have him back. And, you know, if you want to have, throughout the week, football content and discussions, hit up the GNFB Sammy and GNFB Java Discord channel. And if you want some merch, check out our merch store. Links are in the podcast description. And a special shout out here to Wes Foot in Georgia. 
a really good friend of mine who I've played flag football with many, many times over uh, messaged me about Wes being a fan of the pod. So Wes, hope you're enjoying this episode and hope you recovered from Thursday's uh, just super depressing and disappointing beatdown. All right, Alan, let's get to a busy recognition list here. Yeah. Busy week of donos. A lot of donos rolling in. Yeah, I love it. All right, so we have new donos in the small category from Chase Wright, Casey Greiner, Gavin Boucher or Boucher or Alan? I like Boucher. Okay, I like Boucher too. A little French twist on it. Right. Let us know, Gavin, what the last name pronunciation is. Maxwell Bray, the artist known as GC, and John Booth. Also a level up from Chris Glazier. Medium Dono, brand new for Micah Sims. He wanted to give a special shout out to crew. So Alan, shout That's out me to, to you. our and organization. Your, and your yeah, what's up, org. Micah? Right, pretty awesome. Level up, large donos here from Alan Dunbar and a level up from Stephen Coffer. Uh, appreciate that, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your support. An XL annual dono from the legendary James Newton, who gets his name read each and every week by you, Alan. For a long time. A dono legend. And an XXL annual dono from John Mark Quick. Great name. Another great name. I uh, mean, great name, right? It's like the Hall all of one Fame syllable. That's all. That's really John good. John Mark Quick. That sounds amazing. And then still on the throne are Cooper and Kylie Craig. I was half surprised they didn't just dethrone themselves <laughs> and say, hey, I really don't want to be on the throne anymore. That's so painful. But you know what? You're on the throne of the GNFP, not of the actual Gators football team. So there we're still rolling. We're still bringing the fire and the sauce here. Uh, so. Another week, long live the king and queen. And Alan, as always, read out our illustrious dono legend. I'll start with the former kings or queens. Uh, James Ridge, Barry Jenkins, Guy Tumbleson, Jason Walker, the big homie, little Peyton, Constantine, double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Remery, Craig Scarado, Alan Horde, Cindy Singleton, and Kristen Moody. What a great list. What a list. And I think, Alan, maybe next episode we'll have even a few huh? more. Okay. Some people that are right on the bubble of that $500 total support. And if you're on the bubble, get in quickly because, spoiler alert, we're going to have to move that number up a little yeah. bit so Alan doesn't spend half the podcast exactly. reading our names. But as always, thank you so much for... All of you who listen, whether you support financially or not, means the world to Alan and I, and that allows us to do episodes like this one today, where yeah. you're really a true fan if you're listening to this episode because you care about the program, and you're not just going to shut off your television for the rest of the season and say, forget this, I'll do lawn work or run errands on Saturdays. All right, Utah wins 24-11. to 11. None of us had that score. I guess I was maybe closest although you were fairly close on one of your predictions too we did double predictions with or without cam rising we both picked a win without rising that did not happen he did not play our keys to the game this is going to be weird usually we're pretty on if it happened if we whatever our keys to the game were the gators often won if they didn't they often lost i think all of our keys hit and the gators did not win so mine were 65 percent completion rate throwing the ball it was at 70 which is a great number and their tight ends would have sub 75 yards total they only had 32 james you talked about 215 passing yards there was 333 and the defense allowed four yards or less per carry and it was 3.5 if you just told me that i'd be like man what a great outing from florida 
did not happen. We both predicted a win without rising. I was 17-16. You were 27-13. Let me just start with this. Like uh, When you're watching this, how much does this bum you out? 10 out of 10. 10 out cuz you were a 10 out of 10 excited. And this was this was extra pain. We of course refrained from using social media before games and posting little hot takes and other stuff for a variety <laughs> of reasons, but if I was going to post something it would have been what Alan and I talked about before the game, which was that this had become in my mind a sort of must-win game because of what had happened to Utah. It was the best case scenario for Florida. I mean, Utah's missing eight starters out there. They're missing their best defensive lineman, their quarterback, their best tight end, right? A plethora of other players that matter. And it became something where it's like, okay, this is it. This is a gift. This is a gifted scenario for Florida to go 1-0. and And then to lose in the fashion that we lost, Alan, was as depressing as a football game could be. I think to a supporter and fan of of their of their favorite team. I mean, this was just brutal 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 given what utah's football team was actually like it was hard to find reasonable excuses for a team that you are more talented than and is playing with one or two arms tied behind their back it's hard to get in front of the mic as billy and say hey look this is a great football team which he said and great program they built it for a long time and then talk a lot about how how many new guys we had playing out there doesn't sit as well when Utah's missing a lot of their frontline guys. It just felt bad. Yes, it did. And you know what? It it did give me an appreciation for what Utah has built. Absolutely. I will say this. Uh, Bryson Barnes was way better than I thought he was going to be. Way better. And, you know, there has to be something said for a coach being there for 19 years. The stability that creates... When you bring a new guy in, there's a certain level of play you're going to expect. Not that you won't ever have holes or things that are weaknesses, but they get it done, and they've had the benefit of being there for a long time. And it, if you can get there, it doesn't have to be there 19 years to achieve this, but it gave me an appreciation for what stability looks like, which we've been the opposite of stable since Steve Spurrier left. And obviously some really high highs in the Urban Meyer and quickly off a cliff. So... Uh, that's commendable. I have a, I, it left me really admiring their program. Okay. I'm going to give you this because this is a weird game, right? We talked about the keys to the game. I'm going to give you the most optimistic view of the outcome and the most pessimistic view. And I want you to tell me which one is more real, more fits reality. Okay. Okay. I love this, but I'm ready. Okay. Let's start with the optimistic view. All right, this game, Florida shot itself in the foot. An extreme number of special teams, snafus, missed field goal, shanked punt. You, we all know about the double number penalty, right? They hit a, Utah hits a bomb at the beginning of the game that was, you know, probably shouldn't have been completed if we had the right safety out there. Graham Mertz looks as advertised. You know what? The, Florida's not playing. You know, it's the first game. They're playing a ton of young guys. And a lot of the things that went wrong are, are fixable, right? You can you can clean up those special teams errors. You can clean up some of those really, really costly penalties on offense that put you to, from like a third and one to a third and six. Um, the defense looked much improved. 
Losing at Utah is no sin, right? They've won. They haven't lost there in like two years. Game one, right? Okay, the pessimistic view. Uh, this team did not look ready for a game that they had all offseason to prepare for. The kind of mistakes that they're making show some faults in the overall structure of the organization. These kind of special teams penalties, these uh, getting lined up penalties, illegal formation, false starts at really timely moments, and maybe our Achilles heel, the offensive line, that if this thing is not doesn't get better and this is where we're at, it's going to be a long, long season. And even though we're more talented than a lot of teams, that talent is really young and inexperienced, and it's going to be a bumpy ride. All right, which one are you buying more of those? Which more seems more true to reality? Yeah, the pessimistic one, and and not because I'm I'm actually an optimist as an entrepreneur in life, almost exclusively. I know at times on this podcast I sort of get branded as the pessimistic one, but I think the data of Florida's program has largely shown that just to be reality rather than optimism or pessimism. But I think given what you said, the the difference between those two is what it hinges on for me. Is you mentioned unprepared not ready I think was the word that you used and that's how this football team looked and and that that's bad that's very bad and yes you can start looking at the optimistic view of things which you listed this could happen that could happen this could have been different we could have scored here but even with those things happening if they all happened which some fans are looking at it that way that is a perfect football game and you barely maybe win so what kind of margin for error is Florida Florida the Florida Gators playing with if everything has to go exactly right for them to win on the road against a Utah team missing eight starters. Not good. It's not good. I don't think anyone can sugarcoat this loss in a way that makes it feel palatable, excusable, or good. And you and I said, Alan, before the year that style is going to mean the most this year. This is a style year more than a win-loss year. And 0 for 1 in the style department in the largest way as a team overall. We will talk about some significant, I think, style wins within this game in the micro. But in the macro, this is 0 for 1 on maybe the grandest possible scale with all of the nation watching. The national media has been unrelenting on what they saw, and rightfully so. I mean, that was embarrassing football. And if I'm Billy Napier... I have to feel horrible about how this all went down because I've just made my job that much harder. That's a game that no one missed seeing. And if you saw it, you can't unwatch it. So bad, yeah. bad, bad look. So I think you're right. That that let me put the win loss versus style in perspective. Like let's say Cam rising and they're healthy, everybody and Florida loses on a play like the interception where it's like, oh, that, you know, just a little bit bad timing. The ball goes up, the guy goes through Ricky and intercepts it kind of fluky and you lose 32-34 to a really good Utah team. I think you say, job well done. Man, you cleaned up a little bit. You could have won that game on the road against a really tough team. I don't think anybody is complaining. Right, but those 11 points really great on you. Now, again, there's a lot more opportunities for points. Florida gets into the red zone three times, comes away with almost nothing. Obviously gifts Utah some points um, through that interception, through the double number penalty. But when you're watching the game, I don't think you ever felt like Florida's got it. And it was the weird mistakes that 
are holding us back. Now they held us back from winning that game, but Utah is not the most difficult team on our schedule. And it doesn't mean that Florida can't win a lot of games this year, but this was not a good start. If this is our data point, again, it's not going to be the only one, but right now it creates a lot of questions. All right, let me ask you, what was the most troubling special teams, offensive line, penalties, or something else? This is a good question. Uh, I'm going to say something else. And for me, this is this is one of the three parts of the three-legged Billy stool that we had concerns with, right? From day one, he got hired. We wanted to hire him, first of all. Mm-hmm. But then we said, here are the challenges that we don't know the answers to, and we're going to find out. One, does his recipe of team building work in the SEC? Two, can he recruit at a level that's required? And three, does his offense, which seemed questionable at best, can that work in the SEC at this level? Is he qualified to run the offense on his own? And the biggest trouble to me was the offense, and it wasn't just because of the offensive line. It's the same thing we've been chronicling from the beginning each and every week. Play design, play structure, play calling. Uh, There are so many things that were just distressing to me in real time. Mm -hmm. And when you see the film, it doesn't feel better. And that's the worst of all for me is I see it in real time. And I think maybe on film, this will be something that is, that is going to be different. I'm going to feel better about it, but that's not the case here. And that, that is the most troubling to me because Alan, if it's just your offensive line and let me give you a simple example, let's say Lincoln Riley is having offensive line problems at USC you know that his offense is good and he'll figure out a way to still score points. Or let's say that Lane Kiffin is having a problem with his offensive line and Ole Miss. You know that he'll find a way to score points. That's why, to me, the most troubling is not just the offensive line. Mm-hmm. It's it, That's just another factor adding into the major problem, which is this offense, in the simplest way, shape, or form, when it comes to passing the football consistently, third down, for example, is not getting it done. Broken is probably the right word. Uh, and that is very troubling because you can't fix that in a week. You can't fix that even with different players, per se, uh, at least not quickly. I'm troubled by that, deeply troubled by what I saw from the offense in general as a whole. Right. Of those things, the special teams, I think you can get cleaned up, fixable. Penalties you can reduce all, always, right? If you If you are aiming in that direction and you want to achieve that, you can at least reduce them. The O-line is very concerning for me because of what you just said. I think our margin for error, and I like that term when when applied to this situation, is low. I think for Billy's offense to really flourish, you need elite-level players at every position, and we don't have that, certainly. Now, not everyone has all of the strengths, right? Let's. I think we can't ever really get away from Dan Mullen versus Billy Napier, right? They're almost the inverse of one another and what their skill set is and their strengths, right? Dan Mullen will find a way to generate yards and points somehow, right? Despite the fact that maybe the offensive line isn't very good or he's playing the wrong guy and the wrong the wrong guys, that quarterback, running back, et cetera, offensive line, whatever. He'll still find a way to get it done. Structurally and recruiting-wise, he's a mess, right? Team culture-wise, he's probably a mess, right? So this is the problem for Billy is can you do this without having like optimal build out, right? And if things bad things happen, can you overcome them? And and thus far, the answer is 
probably not. And yeah, that's concerning for me. So the, I think the offensive line in our current circumstances is definitely the most problematic, but it's only really indicative of our bigger structural issues. Now I, I thought a little about this. Normally Florida is not playing Utah game one. Normally they are playing someone like McNeese state. How much of our issues do you think would have been resolved by if you reverse the order of these two games? Some of them would have been resolved. Like I think that you iron out your special teams issues. You, Someone in a meeting raises questions about having two number threes overlapping potentially on special teams. Like that's possible. Should or you have that? that penalty and it doesn't matter. Sure. Right. Is that wise? Is having eight men on for a field goal <laughs> unit something we can fix? Right. So those things I think you you get a chance to fix. And I, I really do. I, one of my probably least favorite football terms is correctable and fixable and cleaned up. And that's, I think it's largely because I'm a Florida fan and I've endured that from Ron Zook first and foremost, who was Mr. Correctable himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then every other coach uses it too. Must champ cleaned up, fixed, whatever, because most of the time when coaches are saying that it's because it keeps happening and it seems like it's theoretically fixable and it probably is for a good coach, but for your coach, it's not fixable. Now I'm not saying that's the case for Billy, but it's one of those phrases that just feels empty because <laughs> well i think you understand the difference like okay our offensive line talent is low you you don't fix that right now but could you fix the play where people aren't we don't have too many men in the backfield and you get the right orientation yes but if that's like uh endemic of a larger problem of like lack of detail lack of organization that doesn't get cleaned up as easily well you're you're right but i think my point is how many practices did Florida have before this game? True. How many scrimmages did they have? How many resources of human beings went into preparing for this first game? How many sets of eyes in the army of staffers looked at the spreadsheets of who was on each team group color-wise, who's coming and went, punt safe, punt return, punt block, and this happens. So this is frustrating to me because a lot of these errors were not the player's fault. That's bad. You and I have said on this podcast now in our ninth season, the worst results are the ones where it's not the player's fault. Because ultimately the the college coach is supposed to make sure that the players just execute the plan. And if you lose, it's because your players just weren't good enough, but they executed the plan. But man, oh man, Alan, it's hard to find a narrative in this game where... The coaches didn't significantly jack up the players' chance to win this football game. We'll chronicle that and cover that in this episode. So the cupcake would have helped. It would have helped some for sure. But there's these issues just seem deeper. And I think if you're the staff, perhaps you're shocked at how your first real game went, given how confident you were feeling entering into the game. And we had talked about this. Hey, look, Vegas has Florida five and a half wins. Billy seems quietly confident behind the scenes optimistic we're going to surprise people a lot of issues from last year are going to be cleaned up team unity is there and billy talked a lot about the character and and unity of the team afterwards and that's all great alan but if none of that leads to playing well and winning it doesn't matter anymore you know um so yes some things would have been cleaned up but make no mistake about it uh these issues should not have occurred in the in the significant amount they did occur that's what i want to say you're gonna have issues in your first game way too many of them occurred here and then yes some would have been cleaned up 
not enough for me to believe that a cupcake game followed by the Utah game would have done anything to change the outcome, given what we just saw. Right. Because cupcake games generally make you feel like you're a hero and your team is great until you play a real team and you realize your issues. And so the pressure of competition is what exposes your weaknesses. And this is what occurred in this game. The reason the aforementioned penalty occurred, why did we even have that penalty occur? Indecision on the coaching staff. That was a fourth and three at midfield. Utah could have gone for it. The coaching staff was indecisive as to how they wanted to handle that situation. Is it punt safe? Is it punt return? Is our defense out there? They didn't know. So what happened was they're in between mixing and matching what to do. They run a returner on, but Jason Marshall doesn't get the signal that they're now out of the punt coverage he thought they were in. Boom, penalty, right? So had there been one decisive move immediately, fourth and three were doing this, that never occurs. That's on the players. It's on the coaches. That occurred because of pressure in a tight game that mattered to them on a fourth and three at midfield. And that's what's going to expose your weaknesses in general. It's not going to be McNeese State with a fourth and three on your 50-yard line at home. You feel no pressure there. You just roll out the punt unit and live with it. Or you roll out your defense and live with it, right? But that mattered and it exposed a weakness for Florida. Right. I That's really well said. Yeah, you're looking to clean up a few things, you know, like special teams penalties or, hey, on this play, this player did not know what he was doing. We need to teach him that. But it doesn't affect your offensive line capabilities and it doesn't affect your route trees. So hopefully, I think as Billy said in his press conference, like we can't waste the opportunity to learn from this. And so we'll see what lessons they begin to take away from this game. All right. Uh, Billy talked a little about the Utah environment. I know you, <laughs> you had some feelings about that. Well, I have lots of friends who went to the game and I was at the game last year, which was very humorous. You and I, you know, we sat near the Utah student section. And the Utah section in general. Um, and most of those people were, it was comical. It was so loud for them. They're covering their ears. This is going to be this loud the entire game. This is unbelievable how loud this is. Our stadium's nothing like this noise-wise. And I've been to almost every SEC stadium, and a lot of them are very close to Florida's noise level. So, you know, it's noisy. From By all accounts from anyone, Utah plays extremely well in their home stadium. But the noise is not really something that, Florida football players generally are going to have an issue with. Now, we have I'm a lot sure of new it's guys. loud, but it's not the Correct. loudest thing they've ever it's heard. It's not right. That's the thing. It's not appreciably louder than anything else, and it's more of probably a regular noise scenario. So Billy complimented the environment, which I think he's just going to do. Coaches do that and said some of the issues came from the environment, uh, which, you know, again, is a preparation thing. Why are we not ready for this? But the film says something very different, Alan, and we're about to break down the game. But on film the majority of the false starts issues had nothing to do with crowd noise and everything to do with Utah recognizing that they might try an age-old tactic on the defensive line, which is to shift just before you think the other team is going to snap the ball as aggressively as possible with maybe two or three of your defensive linemen in hopes that the offensive linemen get spooked and jump, which is what happened. Multiple times in this game, in fact, and it happened to multiple different players on Florida's offensive line. And let me tell you why I think this matters. You can simulate this in practice, Alan, very easily. All you do is you have your defensive line do the same thing over and over again in practice. Hey, you don't tell the offense, look, here's what I want you to do. We're going to start shifting before the snap. Give you a signal. Let's go ahead and do it. And you get your offensive lineman ready for it. It's pretty clear to me, Alan, that we had probably, I don't know this for sure, probably not seen a lot of this in practice. We certainly hadn't seen enough of it given how many different offensive linemen fell for that tactic in this game at crucial points, 
And that is a big fat check mark to Utah for extra preparation where the coaches put the players in a position to succeed and a very simple tactic could have potentially swung the entire football game here, Alan. So yeah. that part's frustrating because it's one thing when you can't hear the clap snap, which we've chronicled before. I still hate the clap snap, by the way. We still do it. We've had tremendous issues with it. Billy's now, what, 1-7 and seven on the road as a coach? You think maybe the clap snap be something you'd look at getting rid of. But this was not the same thing we'd seen before with the clap snap, right? The center heard it. The lineman heard it. In fact, almost every single time we jumped was not because of a snap count. It wasn't because of that. It was because Utah forced it with a shift or a move. And that is lack of preparation, not the environment. Well, Utah invited it, maybe. Yeah. Because they can't force you to do it. They raised the question, so to speak. Correct. And it worked. And it works. That's that's great on them. But that's very amateur by us to be the... That's just not that... Maybe you get one of those. Yeah, fool me once. Not so many times over. And they did. And they even got our center. They got our center. He's holding the ball. He's holding the football, Alan. Grant Mertz is like signaling to a receiver somewhere. There's no clapping being done. He's there's some noise being made. And they shift and he snap he he starts to he jitters and he you know he's he's a he's a first time starter. Yeah, for sure. So I'm not picking on him in this way to say, man, what a bum. That's not true. But the reality is there are ways you could have prepared him for this moment better. Uh and that's Utah prepared for the moment. That's what I want to say. They out prepared for that moment. And that's painful, I think. As a coach, you have to say, that's on us. We have got to do better. And of course, they did say that. I'm just disappointed with all of this time, with all this talk of year two, with all this talk of culture that on the football field, we looked like a wholly unprepared amateur football team. That hurt. Man, that's tough. Tough words there. Okay, let's talk about offense in general. I'm going to read us some statistics here. 346 yards of offense, 330 yards passing, 13 yards rushing. Now, that includes... Sacks, they yeah, get like baked in there. 29 yards lost right. on Mertz. So, you know, fine. We have 40 some odd yards of rushing. Right. Still, which is still bad. That's, that works out to 0.6 yards per rush. We're a running team, remember. Right. Bad. One interception. One for 13 on third down. Let me read you some of these down distances here. That's right. Read that again. One for 13 on third down. Have you ever have, have you ever heard of such a thing? We've covered some stuff, but I'm, I'm trying <laughs> to think. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But Usually one we're, for 13 is unreal. It's... It's almost unimaginable, but this is what's even funnier. Usually we're like complaining about the reverse, like our defense. It's like, oh, they were 10 for 13 on yes. third down. Yes. Read okay. off some of these down yeah. and distance. So here's, and here in. comes the problem. Here. This is in order, by the way, right. after the first couple, which you know were short and we shot ourselves in the foot. Right. Third and 12, third and 12, third and 22, third and 19, third and six, third and six, fourth and nine, third and 10, third and eight. Not where you want to be. That's unreal. Not where you want to be. It's not like we faced an NFL defense here. I mean, that's that's hard to understand, actually. Yeah, that's bad. All right, two of five on fourth down, five sacks. Mertz, we're going to talk a lot about him, right? I, I this, is, this is one of the big question marks of the season, but not a bad stat line on the surface here. 31 of 44, 333 passing, as I said, one TD, one pick, which was a – Kind of a wonky pick. He didn't. He put it there too early, too hard, but wasn't a terrible mistake. Uh, Etn. Here's where it gets weird. Seven carries, twenty five yards. Montreal Johnson, three carries, six yards. The receivers obviously had some better numbers. Ricky, eight receptions, ninety two yards. Caleb Douglas, four for forty two and a TD. Okay. Here's what I want to know 
Right. We look like a our stat line looks like the inverse of what I would have expected from us, or at least what we would want to do. Right. And again, in theory, big picture. So was the lack of just rushing attempts due to the looks that Utah was giving us defensively or a lack of trust in the run game? Right. We asked if Billy would be willing to deviate from his core identity of run the ball into bad fronts and throw the ball in early downs. We did that. Was that like a tackle decision because he didn't trust the run game or is that what Utah was telling us they wanted us to do? That is the key question, and if you're brand new to this podcast, welcome in. Uh, I'm, an, I'm a numbers guy, meaning good football is played by taking what the defense gives you, and you start by counting the numbers in the box. Is the team trying to stop the run or the pass? And, and humorously, Alan, we talked about this with Kyle Trask. Kyle Trask was so legendary that year in college football, I still think a lot of fans don't even know from other schools, that we often faced hysterical, like weekly you know, three and four man boxes. Right. Because we could not run the football at all because we also had a terrible offensive line. And they would drop eight guys like on every snap and we would still shred them through the air, right? Well, the opposite is true, obviously, here with Florida. And we talked about before this game that, hey, you know what happened? We ran all over Utah last year. You know what's not going to happen this year? Us running on Utah. Not just because of our personnel. They're not going to allow it. They're, they take pride in their their defense. So here's what happened on those 22 rush attempts. 13 of the 21 were versus a loaded box. A loaded box is seven or more men in the box. Four of them we ran versus an eight-man box. One was actually a nine-man box, which is pretty outrageous. We ran the ball in. Alan got to witness me melting down while watching on the film. <laughs> uh, and then we had nine versus a seven-man box. And then humorously, we had eight runs versus a six-man box, which is when you want to run the football for minus two yards. So we were wildly unsuccessful in the eight attempts we had when you need to be able to run the football. And of course, we were not surprisingly unsuccessful running versus a loaded box. Uh, So here's the answer. If you and I, Alan, are coaching a team and on Friday night in our local high school area, we'll take high school, the opposing coach lines up seven or eight men in the box every single time, I will pass the ball every single play because I have to be able to punish them for loading the box up. Every single play I will pass. That's, in fact, what the air raid system would do at a base level, right? Until they come out of that. That's the kind of football I like. It's a, it's a tactical advantage. It's a maximum expected value for your return per play. Billy's not that way, obviously. He's going to run the balls of running coaches will. But he did, theoretically, do largely the right thing by passing more. And, in fact, in my opinion, he did the wrong thing 13 times. But let's say you get a few of those to see if they can stop you because maybe you just need to know. They're loading the box. Right, they're putting eight guys in there, but maybe we're going to strafe them. So let's say he did the wrong thing, you know, definitively nine times, right? Which is still nine times too many. Give them four to test it out. It's not working, okay? So the answer is largely we struggled because they had loaded boxes. But the main reason we really struggled is they had loaded boxes and our offensive line was horrific. Absolute train wreck of a performance by them. Those two things together lead to what you get, which is, you know, a comical 13 yards on 21 carries for a team that's supposed to be built upon running the football with two ex- excellent running backs. And you and I said this, unfortunately, what did we say in the season preview? Running backs are probably the least important position on your team. And this is why, this is why, especially when you have an offense designed by Billy Napier, which is not finding ways to get in my opinion, our best player on offense, Trevor Etienne, the ball. Seven carries for your most electric player. You got to find a way to get that guy the football somehow, some way. 
whatever the case may be, right? Feed him the ball, line him up as a wideout, throw him a million screens. You got to get the ball in his hands. And Urban would find ways to get his best players the ball. This offense, and we talked about it last year, I talked about it again this year, is largely built upon doing exactly what Billy wants to do in the perfect world where he's going to force his parts into it. If it doesn't work, we're pretty much screwed. Right. So on one hand, I want to applaud Billy for not being stubborn and just running into a brick wall every other down. Yes, that would have been the worst case scenario. If we're in the ball 40 right. times here, I'm losing my mind because right. then it's like we're not understanding base football. And, you know, Grammar's had a 70% completion percentage, largely because we were throwing out behind the line of scrimmage or right around the line of scrimmage a lot. To Odom, who's the second coming of Travis Kelsey. Right. You just didn't um, know. To tight ends who are not really capable of doing a lot after they catch it. Um, yeah, we said we, that was the worst position group on our team. Right. They were like heavily featured as though they were all stars. And we, and what's funny when we did try to throw the ball to the wide receivers, either Johnson or ETN, often we were either inaccurate or it was some bad timing or bad like play distance in terms of like you know are they in the right spot to receive the ball? There's obviously something off there, and so we we're unable to get them the ball. Um, this might be just who are, and then here's the problem if. Uh, you know, a team is loading the box against you. There's more space down the field, right? So still up close, you still have a lot of guys who are in that area. What you would like is to be really pushing the ball down the field. Now, again, when you have a bad offensive line, that creates a problem with the amount of time that you have to throw. So it compounds on itself. But we didn't really test them too often down the field. I think combination of, you know, hey, we need to get some yardage on some of these plays because our our run game isn't working and we don't necessarily have the time. We have to figure that out a little bit. If a team is going to dare you to push the ball down the field, you have to be able to complete that sometime. You have to. And let's talk about, like we said, Alan, like let's talk about what Florida didn't do on offense is let's say you're struggling on your own line. You don't just have to keep beefing it up which is what Billy prefers. It's one of the the warning signals, I think, of his offense from the beginning was like, I don't like this because modern football wisely said, you know what we can't do if we're a small school that can't recruit well? We can't beef our lineup to get extra protection versus the Penn States in the 90s, right? What we can do, though, is spread teams out. And that's where the spread offense really got its first focus. We spread them out. We clarify what's in the box. We force their big, strong linebacker to go out there. We force him to put DBs in instead of linebackers. And now maybe we can do some stuff. So Florida in this entire game never once actually tried that. You know, we ran a handful of plays where we had four receivers out there, one always being a tight end. We never ran a single play in 10 personnel where you have one running back and four receivers. Uh, But to your point, we never actually let the offensive line attempt to go five on five or even five on six. They were frequently dealing with simulated pressures, with multiple pressures, a lot of pressure. We'll talk about the pressure rate in a second, Alan. And we're bunching the field up. So now you've got an offensive line that's struggling. We're bunched up in our offensive sets. There's any one of eight or nine guys that can come at them. Stunts, twists, replacement blitzes. It is so complicated. So an odd counter to this for some football fans, if you're new to this idea, is you spread everyone out and then you make them spread out with you. And then... You see what happens. Can your O-line actually block five or six guys? Maybe they could have, right? And maybe you have time to put pressure on the weakness of Utah's team, which was a secondary. So I'm, I'm very disappointed that Florida 
never really attempted that. We sort of just kept running our plays. And to you mentioned now, we're playing right into their hands. They're loading the box, and we're generally taking the throw they want us to take. I mean, on film, they were like kind of forcing us into this corner. If you want this short throw to Odom, you can take it. If you want this short tech down here, you can take it. we got a guy waiting for you, right? Those are the throws that they wanted us to make. And ultimately, Alan, you said it right then. If a team is going to load the box against you, what they're telling you is they don't think that you can consistently complete 8 to 15-yard passes. And therefore, unless you prove you can, they are not going to come out of their game plan. And Florida didn't even remotely come close to proving that, even though they wound up racking up quite a lot of passing yards, a lot of it later, Yeah, which was which is good. I'm happy to see that. The game plan itself was was not quickly adjusted to what needed to be done to attempt to win this football game. Uh, and hats off to Utah for, I think, correctly identifying a way to attack Florida. But double hats down for Florida because this was precisely what we said was going to happen in our exact breakdown of the game. They're going to shut down the run aggressively. They're going to force you to pass the football. And I got to give one extra bonus to Utah. I never would have imagined that they went as, quote, suicidal as they did. And here's some stats I want you to react to, Ellen. We said they played 30% man last year, which is a lot for them. And they did it because they had an excellent All-American corner. They replaced all those guys. They were weak in the secondary. They played 35% man versus Florida, oftentimes just showing it. They oftentimes also had a lot of good post-snap shifting. We'll talk about that in a second, too. They applied pressure on Florida's passing downs a remarkable 49% of the time. It felt like it. 49%. They brought either five, six, or seven-man pressures. That's unreal. That's unreal. They were at 41% last year, and I had said, expect that number to be like 30% by the end of this year. I think that's going to be true. Yeah, that 30% number. But for Florida, they were like, forget it. We have zero respect or expectation that Florida can pass versus us. And we are going to send people every single predictable passing down. And they did it. And despite all that, Mertz actually, I think, did pretty well. Because those numbers are insane. 49% pressure. And obviously, they got home too. It wasn't like we held up against it. So that part hurts me some because... As a Florida coach, you had to know they were going to die on the hill with you having to pass to beat them. And we seemingly, in my opinion, did not have great answers to the questions they raised of our offense. Right. And there were some down the field plays. I don't want to say we didn't do it all right. You're probably thinking, you know, Marcus Burke had a couple of those catches like we're talking about 15 to 20 yard down the field. Ricky had one at least. We had Ricky in the end zone open, but the pressure got to Mertz and bumped him. And it just sails just over him, right? So there wasn't none of it, but they didn't think we could do it consistently. Yeah, well, instead of those couldn't. five or six you mentioned, we should have done it 25 times. Exactly. That's the difference in the modern passing offense. It's okay, great, but we'll take 25 shots at that. We get 10 of them, the game's over, because that's probably 10 big plays. Right. But they knew we would not take enough of those shots. And so there's a stat, it's like A dot, and I don't even know what that stands for. It's like your average, like how far you're throwing it down the field. And his was comically low for the number of passes that he had. Um, but let's talk about Mertz a little bit more. Um, I think I, what people have been asking about me, I think he was as advertised, at least <laughs> maybe that's not true. He was as advertised from this podcast. Well, I think we thought he would. Be. Yes. Yeah. I think you did a great job of breaking it down. The, the phrase that you were using to describe him was, yeah, I don't know if you made this up or not, but capable pilot, right? He did 
most of what we asked of him, he was efficient. He didn't really turn the ball over again outside of like, you know, stuff that will happen in a football game, kind of weird plays. I don't know. I Like if we were going to get that play out of him with, let's say, an excellent offensive line, excellent, um, I don't know, schematics and our current receivers and running backs, I think we win a lot of games, right? He's he's capable of, of moving you to victory. The problem is we had to rely on him to be like the hero, and he's not capable of that. He's not Caleb Williams, right? So we put too much pressure on him to play perfectly. But I think, we, we as you said, we could have gotten more out of him had we directed him in, in the right places. He did largely what he was asked to do in this game. Of course, you miss some open receivers. That Every quarterback does that. He was a little inaccurate, you know, probably more so than you want him to be on some of those short throws. But I would take that play from him with improved aspects of other things. Um, he wasn't the problem. I think a lot of people are like, oh, you're going to try to win with Graham Mertz? Your season is sunk. Well, no, I don't. That's not the issue here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the simple answer is Graham Mertz's performance in that game was plenty solid enough to win the football game. If you tweak the offense and he plays the same way, similar numbers, one turnover, right? Uh, I think that game is probably easily won, uh, especially when you look at how much pressure he was under. Five sacks, you know, he's harassed multiple other times. The a lot only, of knockdowns. The only reason he throws the pick is that he has a free blitzer coming in his face. He's on the one yard line. And he's, you know, he's thinking I can maybe just squeeze this off a little early and Ricky will turn around, see it, and catch it. He knew there was a risk there. The ball was coming out early, not because of him. It was a pressure. Or he ducks and takes a sack on the one-yard line. That's the two choices that he had. And, of course, as Florida tends to have on these tipped passes like AR did last year, Ricky turns around, tipped pass, like always becomes a pick for Florida, right? But again, that decision actually made a lot of sense. He's a he's a quarter second off from that working, and also not his fault that yet again a free blitzer is right in his face on the one yard line. So it makes sense. So that performance by him, how he handled it, how he got through his reads, he never got gun shy going through his reads despite being under constant pressure. I thought he performed well. I thought he was in fact that capable pilot on the road, and underrated here, Alan. He got Florida in and out of their formations with lightning speed. It's not his fault. The play call was taking forever to yeah. come in. But when it came in, the camera kind of would pan away and come back, and we're lined up. He had everything running so smoothly. So there's a lot more, I think, they could have tried to unlock out of Graham Mertz in this game. I and mean, he had some really nice balls. Uh, the throw that he threw to to Burke was beautiful. A little you know, slot fade back shoulder ball, really nice. I'm sure he wants the ball to Ricky. He wants that one back, the one that he underthrows that we wind up catching for a big game. It should be a walk-in touchdown on the Mm -hmm. out and up. But he still hit that. As a quarterback, if you want to miss, you still want to hit it. You don't want to miss it, miss it. Uh, But all in all, capable pilot. Deserved, really, I think, to win the game with how he managed all the factors he had on his plate. Did a good enough job to win. This was not on him in any way, shape, or form. All right. right. You mentioned I'll bring it up here. I think another issue that we need to resolve somehow, and I don't know that this is really correctable because of the way we structure our offensive philosophy is we could not go fast. We need to be playing at high tempo. And I don't think we're unwilling to do it. I think we're unable to do it. And I I don't know if that's correctable very quickly. 
It's not because it seems to be philosophical. I mean, you have the pieces in place. Again, the play call comes in, things get done quickly. But let's let's focus on something that just drove me insane, and I'm sure it drove most of you insane, is the complete mismanagement of the game in the late third quarter when we're down 24-3. to And you're still actually in the football game. Mm -hmm. You watch enough football, not out of it yet. If you score and make it 24-10, let's say, you're putting pressure on the opposing team. And then you can have something like (laughs) that almost happened where they fumble the snap crazily it bounces right to their guy after he gets hit, after the quarterback, Nate Johnson, there's five guys around. You get that scoop and score, all of a sudden you're one score down and you're right in it, even though you've been out of the game, right? So you want to play with urgency to put yourself in a position to take advantage of a potential like kooky play. And you practice two things as a team always. You practice your four-minute drill mm-hmm. and your two-minute drill. And your team is familiar with this and you know it. It was an obvious four-minute drill situation as the third quarter is winding down. You need to score before 11 or so minutes in the fourth quarter so you can kick off, play defense, let's say three minutes, eight minutes, get the ball back, and you can do either another four-minute drill with four minutes left or a two-minute drill, depending on where you go with that. What you can't do is what Florida did, a seven-minute drive that results in a score where almost all of that time was Graham Mertz looking at the sideline waiting for a play. And then getting the team lined up with maybe 10 or 11 seconds left on the play clock. And then snapping it as quickly as he could in that regard. That's almost every single snap. We comically let the third quarter expire for 25 seconds just standing there with no play call coming in. Unbelievable. Inexcusable. That's not Graham Mertz, right? And then when we do get the ball back, we need to have a two-minute drive, not a four-minute drive. Because a four-minute drive means there's under two minutes. And you're really left with the dreaded onside kick option, which is, you know, a 5% hit rate. And we ran a four-minute offense. Again, no urgency. So that is elementary football. It's elementary math. Colossal mismanagement by the offensive staff, offensive coordinator. And that really punished Florida, where I think they, they were putting pressure on Utah. And perhaps they had a chance to backdoor this one. But again, they're their own worst enemy. And that is extra frustrating. For sure. So obviously Florida was brutal on third down. We read you the one of 13 statistic. Obviously the bad down and distance is the main factor in that. So what's the major failure there? Obviously you're not expecting to convert very many of those long third downs. Can you point to any one thing or is it just all of the factors that we've been talking about? Well, I think it's that you had to be in those long down and distances on third downs. I mean, think about this, Alan. Florida has third and one. We fall start. It's third and six early in the game. Like, all right, let's see what we can do. It looks bad. It looks as bad as last year at times. By the middle of the game, if Florida had third and eight or third and six, you felt like it was impossible to get the first down, right? Which is crazy. Like third and six gets picked up a decent amount in the NFL and in college football. But obviously, you can't face that many long third downs without realizing you're failing on first and second down. And Florida didn't actually have a lot of penalties on first and second down. No. That's the crazy thing. A lot of those numbers we read to you weren't because we took a holding penalty or other. It wasn't that case actually at all. It was how poor our offense was performing on those downs. And again, to me, this comes down to a major problem that Florida's had. We talked about the quick game. It, it gets discussed quite a bit out there in the atmosphere in general in football. And sometimes there's some confusion on the quick game. The quick game doesn't mean just running screens or a pop route. What it generally means is your quarterback has what's called a zero drop. So in the shotgun, 
He basically catches the ball and doesn't go anywhere else. Catches the ball, opens up, and is ready to throw. This ball is coming out within one, one and a half seconds immediately. So again, it can be a screen, can be a slant route, could be a hitch route, could be a pop route. But Florida doesn't generally employ that as an answer to teams pre-snap. Hey, look, they're in man or they're in this or they're probably bringing pressure. Let's go quick. Now, we did it a couple times later in the game. We got a ball tipped that would have been a completion to Xander's. We ran some nice screens in this football game that worked out. It was nice mm-hmm. to see that. I think that was added in the offseason. It seemed like they put an emphasis on that. That worked. But Florida's inability on first and second down to gain between four to seven yards when they were loading the box against you, or really even more, is what put them in these third down situations where now they know you have to pass. And Florida's passing playbook, as we know, is not good. The routes are not good. We often run hitches, which are easy to cover. We often run two guys in the same spot, which is embarrassing. And with our offensive line, we barely have time to get to the second read, let alone the third read, if that third read is even open. So there's not a lot of answers to third and six or seven, except stay out of it. And how do you stay out of it if most of your playbook, your best part of your playbook, the part Billy's really good at is the run design isn't working. What do you do? Yeah, it's tough. And I, again, it's asking greatness from all levels. And so I don't think you would necessarily expect a plus at every element of offense. But right now we're, we're subpar in too many of those facets of the game. And yeah, that you're right. We can't be in bad down and distance because we're not equipped to deal with it very often. Right. Uh, if you imagine Florida, again, with Anthony Richardson, we're often, okay, we're getting to third and one. That is much more likely that we're going to pick that up because you have to respect so many different things that he might do that a simple run is probably going to pick it up. And it gives you appreciation for, uh, you know, Anthony, when you're watching Mertz not be able to dodge and get more time to throw. I mean, Anthony would make those rushers just evaporate and buy some more time and get something done uh, in those situations. So so even when the play call wasn't good, we still were often successful or something good happened more often than not, even though you see problems in the structure. Yeah, that's right. And we obviously in the podcast talked a lot about how you know underappreciated we felt like AR was. He was young. He was probably where he should have been as a developmental passer, but he – he presented things to a defense that you had to you had to be weary of. Any given time, he can break the pocket and score on you. That was a real threat. Mertz is athletic; he can run, but you're not worried about him dancing, you know, one on one versus a free rusher where AR made those guys miss. We saw there wasn't really but one rollout play action which Billy would abuse with AR, yeah, which to the point where I was like, please just cancel this play. Really, like this should not be run ten times a game. And we ran it successfully and actually converted. It was it was the right time to use that kind of play. But, you know, AR would would escape Houdini himself out of things, find a way to make something happen. Um, and then Mertz, I think, you know, showed things that maybe AR didn't always have, which was just consistency, I think, of lining up the offense, probably making the right decision. Um, but to your point, Alan, defensive coordinators are not afraid to bring pressure because Mertz is not going to score a touchdown on them. He might get 10 yards, but not a touchdown. Whereas the green light is on and other teams are going to see this blueprint, make no mistake about it. They're going to see the blueprint here and say, well, this is great. Utah's secondary is not good right now. They don't even trust their secondary. 
And they still did this? And Florida couldn't make them pay? Okay, we might be able to employ this too. So I think that this is a systemic failure of the offense and the system. And, and I like to look at it like this. There's a great book in investing. Uh, it's called, you know, being, it's anti-fragility or being anti-fragile. And the idea is that you want a system that not only holds up in terms of turmoil or, or big difficult periods or even black swan events, but you want it to get better. Like you're able to learn from it and get better immediately. So therefore it's anti-fragile. It's not fragile. It's not easily broken. And I think as you're saying, Alan, Billy's offense is unbelievably fragile to the point to where if he doesn't have all of his pieces and parts, it just doesn't even work. It doesn't work. And we said this last year. It doesn't. What else do you need to make it work? Like how many coaches could have taken what we had last year and at least made it work at a level that was something? What could Lincoln Riley have done last year, for example, right? And I think for Billy, it's not a great look that we're both sitting here saying the answer is that he has to have every single piece correct for this to work. And if he's missing tight ends or he's missing some linemen or he's missing a quarterback or he's, I mean, it's not going to work. He's missing all veterans. I don't know how comfortable that makes any of us. But unfortunately in this game, it was on display. I mean, Utah is a fine defense, but again, this was a dominating performance by them. And a lot of those yards, I'm not taking away from them, were Utah being content to say, look, if you want to take eight minutes off the clock here, we'll let you catch these underneath passes and gain eight yards and then take forever. You can throw all the passes of Jonathan Odom you would like to. Correct. And so you got to factor that in. And you mentioned it too. Like how threatening is your passing game, you know, with the dot stat. And that's important. Like how far is the ball traveling? The game plan they had dictated we should have thrown a lot of passes between 8 and 12 yards. And, and we didn't. Which is telling you we're, that's the wrong tactic for the game plan they presented us. We are playing the wrong game versus them. And that is always the most concerning to us on this podcast because that's suboptimal. That's not good. That's bad generaling, if you will, on the battlefield. You got to use your pieces and your resources and you have to move them in the way that makes sense so you can win the battle. If you don't do that and you lose the battle and say, I just need more pieces, sometimes you just need a better strategy. All right, let's talk about the O-line a little bit. Again, the most concerning part of this whole process for me was their play. And, you know, the first domino of that was Kingsley not playing. I think anytime you're going to play a a guy who's never made a start at center, you're looking at potential shortcomings that that can short circuit in the offense, right? If you, if that guy doesn't play well, also we're having our first start out of Damian George, our right tackle, who you know decently highly high recruit, big dude has not played a lot of football, and that showed up in a lot of ways. I don't think anybody probably played super well. Is this fixable? You know, let's say Kingsley comes back. That's going to solve some of these problems. Um, And I guess there's a chance for the right tackle play to improve with more snaps and more reps. When you watch them play, again, they were getting sent a ton of pressure, so that's not all on them. When you watch them play, it's hard to you know separate them out as individuals, but maybe as a unit, as individuals, were you – hopeful for improvement or were you more discouraged well let's start with george i mean he's the alabama transfer a guy you hope can play right tackle play 20 games at right tackle for them you know really he struggled a little bit early on but i actually felt like by the end he was he was fine the problem with him is and you can see this they were kind of continually speed rushing him exactly and he's just not fleet of foot enough to be a tackle he's probably better suited to be a guard and if he might actually be 
a fine guard for college. Ideally, you want your guards to be quick so they can pull across the formation. But in his own blocking scheme, he's probably better suited at guard. However, he managed it. I think the elite guys are going to present real problems for him. Utah doesn't have one. But he managed it. I think you and I both thought he got called for a holding call that really wasn't holding. I no. think, in fact, he handled the spin move perfectly. That's a textbook handling of that bad call. But he adjusted into the game. Uh, I felt like Mazuka had a few bad plays here and there, but largely was probably the most consistent lineman for the most part. But nothing that popped as a plus side. Right? We talked a lot about last year. Like, man, look at the plus side of Torrance. Look at this block over here. Right? A lot of nice stuff happening. That was not happening. And Barber had a few mental mistakes. You know, he was probably the best blocker overall. But And also, that's his first start at Yeah, it's fine, right? So he's fine. He, he's capable. Like, f- footwork, speed. He was he was certainly capable. They got to figure out communication between the interior. And again, not having a center in his own blocking scheme that knows what he's doing. This is no offense to Slaughter at all. That's a, that's a really hard task. That's tough. Most zone blocking schemes start where you're going to double team a nose tackle or the A-gap, and then you're going to slide off and take whoever comes second. Florida messed that up a ton so often. And they were so good at that last year. And that messes everything up. And so that's why it's like kind of hard to say, what do we look like? I just think in general, the athleticism on film of this line doesn't look good. And it's important for a reminder here of zone blocking versus power. Zone blocking linemen generally are more athletic and they're more fleet of foot. Florida is trying something I think that's interesting, Alan, where yes, we have the biggest this. offensive line in college football, or one of the biggest, but we're not a power running team. We're not a gap team. We'll run some plays like that, but we are primarily a zone-blocking team that wants to run wide zone. That is completely opposite of what all the best wide zone coaches have ever wanted in their lives. Think back to the Denver Broncos in the 90s. They wanted a light, agile line. To this day, you still want a really athletic line for zone-blocking, and Florida is not going for that, which is perplexing for me on this side of things. And it showed up on the film in this game. And that part, that part raises major red flags. You can't just fix a guy's athleticism. You can fix communication stuff and make them better at, you know, doing certain things, but they just don't look like they have the ability to get out and do the things you need to do. If you want to run Billy's running plays, that's, that's not a great look. Yeah, this is the problem here. And again, we have like no margin for error here. I would like to see after that performance. I mean, there's there's chance for for improvement, of course, as we said. But George immediately thought after watching one game, maybe this guy's a guard. And that's not what you want to see, right? I mean, I would love to have another tackle come in and you slide him over to left guard in place of Leonard, who seems barely replacement level. Yeah, we know we knew that about him. We right. said that we've seen He's a career there. backup. Yep. He's not going to be a giant hole there, but I don't think he does really anything doesn't for you. Doesn't add anything, no. And I think the thought of playing Mascua and George on the right side together is that hey, we could get some major push off the right side of the line. These are big dudes in the run game, right? So that's my maybe where you would hope is that you could, if you could get to this that running off that right side could be really effective that and we you know we're putting them in the places of weakness not in strength with the way that game went so i don't have i at the end of the game i was like man this unit may just sink us as i thought about it a little bit more maybe that we could see some improvement there and any improvement there i think would be helpful but if you're going to ask them to block eight dudes at a time of course they won't be able to do that no offensive line is going to do that so something has to change 
it's going to be fascinating to see if Billy will divert from playing so many tight ends, right? We don't have the tight ends to do this. We said this at the beginning. Not that our receiver room is super deep, and I think Andy Jean is even hurt. Like he seemed like he put that out on Twitter, if I remember that. But there's enough guys out there I think you'd feel more comfortable running three and four receiver sets than having a tight end. Right. And there, there's some guys, if you want to bring them in for short yards, bring in Odom and let them block, it's fine. It's not like you can't ever play those guys, but to rely on them as heavily as we are is weird. And then the guy who, Tony Livingston, I don't know what happened in the game. They listed him as a starter on the depth chart, and he only like, had four snaps. Had a play where he, he catches it and he's running and then he falls. Yeah, yeah it looked athletic sniper. out there until that, the right? Old but, sniper in the in the in the woods, right? There, yeah. So that just feels like you're putting more difficulty on yourself, considering the ingredients that you have if you're that pot committed to playing as many tight end snaps as we are. Yeah, and I think that's just the reality. Is one tight ends are harder to develop; they take more time because you have to be both a really competent blocker and you also have to be a competent pass catcher. That's slower than taking a receiver out on the boundary and saying run a go run a post run a hitch run a dig like and you can do that there's a lot more of those guys out there too correct so in football the simple adage is this the further you are away from the center of the field and the ball the easier it is to play that spot right so it's easier to play corner than it is to play linebacker than it is to play d tackle and just play defensive end for all those reasons at least like intellectually not correctly and so that's why it takes more time that's why it takes more time and so the same thing is true here so tight end is a much harder position than receiver. So if we're saying, which we did in the season preview, look, we got three guys at receiver that are young that we think are pretty good. Most coaches would be finding ways to utilize them all game long because they say, we don't have a lot of playmakers. But instead, Florida's like, oh, no, 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 we have Odom, which I don't think anybody saw that coming. We didn't, you didn't, I didn't. No one saw the usage of Odom coming in this regard. And well, Odom maybe is, you did if you just say they're going to play a tight end every. Snap. I guess, and Odom is just a guy. I mean, this is no offense to Odom; he's giving his all out there, but he's not a great blocker. He's not fast. He can't. He like when we're running a lot of the split zone stuff that Billy is so good at. Quick reminder on split zone: the offensive line as a whole is going to block, let's say, one way left, and the H back or the tight end is going to come around the other way and block the backside. So it's a split zone. The running back can go either way. You want that guy in the split zone to be fleet of foot to get around there and then also block the guy. Well, Odom's got like a bionic leg. And even if he gets there, oftentimes, if the defender makes even a slight juke move on him, he cannot block him. And you can't run splits on that way. In in previous years past, whether it was Zipper, we had, you know, obviously Xanders has been competent at that, but they didn't use Xanders in that way. So that was a little confusing. He's played more of that than Odom. So the bottom line is like you're running an offense that's heavily dependent upon a blocking tight end and a pass catching tight end, and you're getting an absolute pedestrian result on either end, your question is a big one. Will Billy do something different? Now, we only ran only 17 snaps in 12 personnel, despite the fact that we don't have two quality tight ends. We ran 54 and 11 personnel. Yes, there we go. Um, but that 11 personnel heavily featured a tight end having to block or or catch the football or like was the feature, not like the accessory. And that's confusing. Again, I think if you're an offensive mastermind as a general, you look at your pieces and you say, my pieces dictate I need to do this, even if I want to do that. And we talked about this all last year. We said, mm-hmm. what we, there's better ways to run offense with what we had. Here we are again in year two. That raises big questions. Okay. I'm just going to tee you up for this because I know where you're headed. And not that you're er- early, but you're often earlier than some people to make, okay, this is what we need to do. 
Like I think back about the say, okay, we need to fire Grantham. Like there came a point where everybody was on board with that, but not that no one else was saying that, but you were pretty definitively saying that, or, you know, and I was not too far behind you on that, but I know you're, I know you're ready to say something. I am. And I should say a lot of people have, this is true in the Gator Nation, right? A lot of people want to do things immediately much earlier than we do. Right. And so that's people, true. We don't want to be reactionary, but some people want to do it later. I think we try our best. We're humans. We can be wrong. We say we try our best to, to make a big take that involves a lot of data before we do it. So even though our feelings might be like all last year, we're like, this feels bad. We ended the season saying it felt really bad. It looked really bad. We get we need more data next year to find out whether Billy is is capable of being the OC. Well, I can say now with you know we have fourteen games. This is our fourteenth game of data on Billy as Florida's head coach. And didn't doesn't look any different than what it did last no. Year and with the whole entire off season, with everything else on film, we wanted to see that this offense would look different, especially in design. That's what matters the most to me is design. And I think the answer is it's not any different. The issues are still there. He's running what we feared last year with AR in general. He's fitting everything into his system, and I don't think his system is very good. We haven't thought that has been very good from the beginning. There's been seemingly no real systemic change, just some light window dressing tweaking, which therefore means this to me. Billy is building momentum in recruiting. It's the most important thing. I think he's building a culture that seems to be solid. I think he's hired a guy in Armstrong, and we're going to talk about the defense, who I think could be a stud. But if he's stewarding this team as the overall head coach, where his job is to do its best for the team, I have come to the conclusion, and I hope that he certainly does too, that it's time for him to fire himself entirely from the offense. And I mean entirely. He needs to have nothing to do with the offense. No say in how they run style-wise. No say in the game plan of what happens. And I think that will be the hardest thing he's ever had to do in his football career. Because as we heard him say over the summer, Alan, he has the most fun calling plays and working with the quarterbacks because, quote, and we said this was a concern, it keeps him closest to the game as if he's playing. And there's no doubt that is incredibly fun. I second that statement. But it's hurting the team. There's no way to escape it. And again, a lot of you from game one were like, oh, this is terrible, right? There's enough data now for me to say conclusively he doesn't have it. The offense isn't it. It's not right for all the reasons we've listed over you know the 14 episodes we've covered, Billy. I won't rehash all of them. And I don't see a way that this reaches the level we need it to reach, especially given that success probably means he needs all 11 pieces to be basically perfect, which is never really going to happen. And even then, I think his offense in a points per play, yards per play system is just inefficient and inferior to other styles it also goes against florida's brand as a whole this is not our brand of football you can win this way but you better be good at it we're not so you're going against the grain of how people want to play football as florida fans so you have a mismatch brand you've got an offense that i think is inefficient not effective and ultimately you know billy hopefully is the consummate right self-aware thinker that wants to win And he says to himself, you know what? I've gone as far as I can go down that road. And I had success, right? I won titles at Louisiana as a play designer and play caller. I'm in the big leagues now. And this is not working. I am not a baller at this. But other people are. And my job as the CEO of this organization is to put people that are better than me in positions to succeed. 
and recognize when I am not the best at this thing. There is no loss or shame about that at all. Not everyone is a Nick Saban or an Andy Reid, right? Or Lincoln Riley or others. But you can be very successful being a guy who loves football, who knows a lot about football, but isn't necessarily a top 10 guy as a coordinator. And you can win. And I think that's where we need to go. And I know at this point in time that if I'm making the decision, it's, hey, Billy, I love you. I want, I love the Gators. I want it both to work. But you've got to remove yourself from this offense. Right. So I think what the potential is here for just a submarine, all of the other good stuff that's happening, if this doesn't change. Now he's got, you know, 11 more games to. To prove that statement wrong. wrong correct. Just right, like but, Grantham had, you know, more seasons to prove that wrong, sadly. But that's interesting what you said. I want to kind of highlight this, divorce himself entirely because I don't think it's that he's a bad play caller. He's not just pushing the wrong button at the wrong time, right? There's some people who are really adept at the intuition of like, I want to call this play now. I don't think Billy is that bad at that. It's the design. So he doesn't need to like just empower someone. Hey, you know what? I'm not calling the right play at the right time. It's just too much. You do it. It's the plays themselves are inferior. A lot of them, or just the philosophy of what we're going to do when, and, that that's some humility right there. So if if he is able to eventually come to that conclusion, and if incorrectly so, right again, if the offense starts to you know produce insane yards per play and points, like I, I obviously I think we change our tune on this, but it just is seeming like that's the direction you don't want to lose Billy Napier as head coach, recruiter, culture builder. CEO, representative, all those things that he seems to be, at least from our vantage point, clearly good at or good enough at. And that's tough. That's hard to, that's a tough pill to swallow. And not every coach is willing to do that. I wonder if he will be, if that's what needs to be done. Yeah. And I think the road here is interesting. So am I saying that this happens right now? No, there's no chance because one, Florida doesn't have, and this is something we've harped on. Florida sadly doesn't have a talented offensive mind on that side of the ball by resume at all. Not a single guy on our offensive staff is what you would consider to be an offensive guru or up and comer, or let's call it coach ham. At least that we know about. I mean, I guess there is technically our tight ends coach, Russ Calloway, who's the youngest guy who has had some experience doing stuff, but he doesn't, it's not like, Oh man, big reputation nationally for being right. That. It wasn't again. Callaway's not like a, a coach Ham who comes, you know, like rocket shipping up into mm-hmm. Bama's program, right? And we need that. I think is what we're probably saying here is like we we hit the glowing weakness on this side of the ball here. And again, Coach Ham's one game in. We'll see what happens. But I think you're seeing at least what can happen with excitement level when you maybe get a piece correct. But all in all. It's not going to happen right now. And if it did happen right now, you'd have to promote someone else. And again, you could give Callaway the gig. But really, is, is he ready for that? Is, Would that be any no, better? No, you know, so Billy gets a chance to play himself out of the position that I put him in here in my own mind. And by the end of the year, I could say I was wrong. And I hope I, I say that because I would love for Billy to succeed in this. Um, but if he doesn't, then I think we're talking about the offseason being the moment where this occurs. And then I think there's also roles other leaders in his life have. You know, you, you, I think Billy's probably a guy, Alan, that has people that hold him accountable that are in his inner circle, friends, et cetera, that at least ask him the tough questions. Say, have you thought about this? Is this on your radar? 
And if I'm, if I'm Scott Strickland, obviously, I think these are questions that you have at the right time. Hey, have you thought about this? I think you're really excelling in this area, right? I'm a leader, you're a leader, but this is a gap. This is a gap. This is maybe holding us back. Have you thought about this? And you hear what someone's thoughts are and you have them articulate what they think they might want to do and you see where it goes from there. Uh, but make no mistake about it. If Billy does not succeed on offense this year and he does have to remove himself and he does it, and he does that on his own accord, Allen. I will give him one of the highest possible marks for humility that you can give somebody. Because at the end of two years, if he does that, that is way above the norm of what anyone else will do. And Jimbo Fisher is a good example. They had to pry that junk from his cold, dead offensive And we still play, don't know whether hands. he actually gave it away yet. Right? And I understand that. Like, that's the most fun thing in football. I totally get it. And that's why I'm setting this up for, like, if Billy does, in fact, do this, I will be championing that kind of move. And I will also say that's the kind of steward you want for your football team. Because this is not Billy Napier and the boys. It's not Billy Napier's Florida program, right? It's Florida football stewarded by Billy Napier. He's a caretaker of this program that's been in existence well before him and will be here well beyond him and well beyond you and I. That's his role. So a lot to be seen there. But, yep, that's the conclusion for me. I've seen enough. Uh, I thought it'd probably take a little longer, but I've seen enough that the data says what it says, the patterns say what they say. Uh, I just don't think Florida can ever win a championship with him being involved in the offense. It's always going to be an anchor dragging the other things he's doing well down enough that I think we just don't have the margin for error to be able to win. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. Okay, I'm going to turn the page there. Great discussion there. This is weird. I'm going to look for hopefulness on the other side of the ball. It's here. We haven't said it is here. in a long time. Now, this is a interesting discussion here because it's not, obviously, Florida gave up some points and some yards and some big plays. But I left this game really encouraged by the defense. So, a few statistics here, 3 of 13 on third down. That's great. Sounds amazing. Sounds like an instant win when you see that. Every day, right? How do you lose with that? Uh, 270 yards total, 165 yards passing. Um, 70 came on that first play. Right, so sub-100 yards. Right. You you can't take away plays. But, again, it just shows you that's how it wasn't consistent, right? right? It was not a consistent amount of passing. Uh, 105 yards rushing for 3.5 yards per carry. A third of that comes on one play Uh with with the the wild ute, if you will. 
Yeah, six punts. Bryson Barnes goes 12 of 18, 159, one TD. Nate Johnson, the Wildcat slash backup, six carries, 45 yards, one TD, scoring that first play. Um, one of their TDs, obviously, was that short field. Yeah, 11-yard line. On third yeah. down, they scored, too. Right. Defense bowed up, third down touchdown. And they obviously got an extra chance on the double three penalty. Uh, you know, Utah missed some stuff too. Like there's some, they had some drops. They could have picked up some more third downs. Trick play for a touchdown. Right. They were but just, that's, again, game one. Like if your defense gives up a well-designed trick play for a touchdown, well, that's okay. That happens yeah. in the NFL with professionals. Like sure. that was a great play and they missed on it, you know, but that, I mean, and Florida actually was there to cover it. Just Princely got beat, but it wasn't like they just abandoned it. They actually had the right assignment. Just they got beat. So anyway. There were points left out there by Utah, but also points were given to them. So I think it probably counteracted itself. So watching the game, the eye test, my like eye test told me they look much improved, right? Not perfect. There's not enough pressure at times. Utah is doing some things to them that they don't want them to do. The, but the young guys look good for the most part. The tackling looked better. The spacing looked better. Our response to certain plays, like okay, when they run this sweep and they hand it off, what do we do to that? Did the when you watch it into the film back up that sentiment? Absolutely. I am so pleased to report that despite the issues we will cover, three things are evident as the the takeaway from this. So if you're like, hey, I just want to hear the high level takeaway and then not the details. Here you go. One, the defense got better as the game went on. That is a great sign. That's what well-coached units do. They get better as the game goes on. Two, our gap control with the front four of the D-line was the best that we have seen it in years. Our linebacking play, scraping, filling gaps, plugging holes was the best that we've seen it in years. And our play calling, defensive play calling, was the best that we've seen it in years. There are probably half of our defensive plays where Coach Ham literally called the exact right defense and blew up whatever play Utah had. We have not seen that in many moons. When you mix a front seven that's filling gaps, controlling gaps correctly, stopping the traditional run plays of Utah well with good play calling and a team that gets better, a unit that gets better as the game goes on, one year removed from an absolute dumpster fire train wreck, things look nice. It should be noted, though, they faced a significantly deficient Utah team, but it doesn't matter. Any team was running all over us last year. Any team was converting third downs with us. We were lined up correctly. We were numbers in the box correctly. Almost every single play countering their formations correctly. Now we had some issues getting lined up early on. We were, you know, I think some communication issues. Those are all game one things, but make no mistake about it, Alan. By the second half of this football game, Florida was playing elite level defense versus their opponents. Will they do that versus other lead opponents? I don't know. But in that second half, outside of a few plays here and there, they were a unit that looked completely and utterly different in all the best ways. And it's a unit that still has personnel deficiencies. But that is what a good coordinator does, is they take their resources and they find ways to get the job done. This defense, despite some of those big plays, played well enough to win this football game. Certainly. They totally did. And that's important to remember. Like, yeah, we didn't shut them out. Yeah, we gave some big plays. Yeah, some things happened. They played well enough to win the game, and they were the better unit as the game went on. They were the best unit on the field for either team as the game went on. The film displayed that. 
entirely. All right, let me play a little devil's advocate here. Okay, second half, Utah had a lead. They didn't respect our offense. They're just kind of sitting on the ball, not really trying to be all that threatening. That is true. But in previous years, teams would run all over us. And we also wouldn't load. So how often, let's let's just one simple example. Last year, almost every week, I'd come on here and I would freak out about how we would sit in too high until the end of time and let teams run on us. Too mm-hmm. high safeties. Run. We were never in too high the entire daggone game. We were frequently in seven and eight man boxes when it was an obvious run situation. If they got down to the red zone, we had nine guys in the box and no safety. Like, we're going to stop you running the football. Like, amen, right? That's what you want to see. Yes. And those are the little things that add up. Because if you're putting your players in position to succeed, the stuff they're messing up on will figure it out. And they messed up on some stuff, right? In the second half, Utah obviously was not out trying to throw haymakers. But in reality, Alan, Utah's game plan went exactly to plan. They wanted to steal points in the first half and build a lead. That's clearly their plan, right? Trick plays. They were going for broke trying to score. Open with a bomb. Don't play conservative and then get the lead and sit on it. But then what did Florida's defense do? They forced six punts. They stopped Utah at the end of that first half. When if they scored at the end of that first half and then they were getting the ball back again, the game is over. They didn't. They answered the bell and they allowed Florida, then their offense, to get a chance to get back into the game. So a lot remains to be seen. Don't take away from this that our our defensive woes are over. But the question you posed initially, Alan, was a reason for hope. The film says there's a significant reason for hope for this unit, not just for this season, but certainly for as long as Armstrong might be here. Now, he's got to earn that over more games, but I think for him, he's frustrated. They missed some of those big plays, but man, the play design, and we'll talk about it on both plays, was right on those touchdowns. On both touchdowns, the play design is right on defense. Player execution was the problem, and that's what you want. That's what we were talking about. That's what you want. I'm not saying that it was not the coach's fault those touchdowns happen. Amen. Hallelujah. That's what you want to be saying was the player's fault. And they can look at that and learn from that. That's awesome. It's been a minute since we've had that be the situation. So this is what's interesting. Watching it, it felt like coherent. It didn't feel like why. I don't think I ever asked the question, why are we doing what we're doing? Anytime. And then there's some guys who really look good. Shamar James. Looked great. As advertised. Great. You know, the defensive line, it's hard to even go, you know, I would have liked to see more pressure get home at times, right? So that might just be some limitations in personnel, but I liked what they were doing. I liked the way they played. You mentioned gap control. It didn't look like anybody was out of place. The main thing, honestly, if you could have one thing you take back, they made a big, well, they didn't make a big deal. We made a big deal talking. They're going to start the true freshman, Jordan Castell. Uh, not the expectation of R.J. Moten, the transfer. And what happens on the first play? R.J. Moten bites on it, then falls over, 70-yard bomb. Oh, man. And he was, I think, also totally whiffed on uh, Nate Johnson on his touchdown run. So not that he's worthless and you can't ever play him, but if you're like, oh, there are decisions, we're actually not going to start this dude it's like, okay, well, now we can see why, right? Well, and yeah, let's give a little redemption to the first part of Moten here because what Moten, and this is also nice too, what Moten right. does is sensical because the real culprit who escapes on the first play with not a lot of heat so far is Miguel Mitchell. So he is our other safety who's yeah. down in the box and he is covering their slot receiver who absolutely destroys him with a basic, just deep crossing route, just murders him. It's like clear that Mitchell thinks they're going to run the ball and Florida doesn't cover one man. 
Moden is backpedaling to cover the deeper earlier threat, which is that post route that Jason Marshall is with, who's also playing man. So as Moten's in his backpedal, totally opening up to take that throwaway, he sees Mitchell is basically, you'll see it in the film review, is basically windmilling face first into the grass. And there is about to be the easiest throw ever for like a 40 or 50 yard gain. And then Moten, unfortunately, doesn't do his job, which is to stay with the deepest guy. He makes a decision that he needs to probably take away the easier throw. After all, this guy's a career backup. He's not a great quarterback. Probably not going to make the 55-yard throw, but he's definitely going to make the 30-yard throw, and I may not even catch this guy because I'm so far away on the opposite hash. He clamps down on it. Then, of course, you know, great moment here for Barnes. He lets the ball go. Marshall is beaten too badly. He's also in man. Yeah. But I get it. Moten sees a guy who's falling down on the ground versus Marshall is running with a guy, makes a decision, tries to turn around and get there in time, and then unfortunately snipes his own guy, and a big play turns into a touchdown play, which is the worst of all. But a little redemption for Moten, it'd be way different if he just dropped down on that crosser that, that Miguel was actually manning. He didn't, and he would not have done that. He did it because Miguel was eating the ground, and this guy's wide open. So... I felt a lot better personally after that. Okay, let me let me walk back. Sorry, RJ. But let me just also say though, the play call was fine. Like they didn't fool us with that play call. The mm-hmm. problem was we got absolutely no pressure in there. He had 500 years to throw. But if Miguel does not fall down, there's actually nowhere really to go with that football that's easy or open. I liked it. So that that's again like if Coach Ham came out and something silly and they killed us, you're like, oh my gosh. And even RJ, they didn't. So I'm like, okay, you know what? Not an excuse. But it all makes football sense, if that makes sense. Like, if you're a football coach, you say, hey, RJ, put your arm on. I get it. I saw what you saw, man. I totally get that. Next time, let that be on McGill. Everyone's got to do that. You can't, you can't save him because you can't give up the bigger play. That'll be on him. And then we'd all be talking about McGill fell down and caused the play to be an issue. Let that happen next time. Learning moment. But I get it. Like, I totally get it. The second one where he just whiffed one-on-one with the tackle, that was just, <laughs> that is what that is. That's yep. not ideal. And Nate Johnson is a fleet-footed guy. He's okay, so here. those are the – you know what? That's actually encouraging hearing you talk about it that way because that's a very nuanced application of that. I hadn't looked at that that closely. So you've, we've already mentioned some of the major differences, getting lined up, putting the right number of men in the box, being aggressive in those situations. Any other – what you would say were major differences from last year. Yeah, we ran a lot of the tight front, which you've heard us talk about, T-I-T-E, in the past. We ran it some with Tony. We ran a lot of it in this game, uh, which I think bodes well for the future. So the tight front is a modern answer to stop spread teams. Obviously, Utah was both a spread team and a traditional kind of 12-11 personnel like Florida is, depending on which quarterback they played. Uh, But Florida featured the tight front depending on the formation, which, again, I love it, formation-based football. The tight front is you put your three defensive linemen and two linebackers inside the mm-hmm. offensive tackles. Yeah. So you have your two tackles that you look at on TV. That's your offensive line. You have five guys in between them. Why do you do this? You basically tell them you're not going to run inside zone. You're not running anything up the middle of the football field. It's impossible. I'm not going to allow you. Go to the outside. So you actually take a spread offense, which was designed to go to the outside, but counter you by going inside and say you're never going inside. I'm going to force you to my funnel. And then you funnel your outside backers, which can be corners or nickels or even safeties, into those lanes. And you take away all of that stuff with your funnel to your free tacklers, your unblocked guys, guys they can't account for. It's an excellent counter spread offenses. I love that we're doing it. We did it really well. We did it super well. 
on the wild you'd play, they scored him a touchdown. The only problem was one, you know, um, Taraja Mitchell oh, yeah. comes flying through the hole with reckless abandon, which he's not supposed to be doing because Florida's playing man with a tight front. So they're plugging the inside and they're playing man, which again, good play design. There are two unblocked guys, Taraja Mitchell and RJ Moten stacked right behind each other. So if Mitchell just plugs the gap and let's say that he messes around for a second or two and Nate jukes him, Moten is only going to be at that point in time, probably six or seven yards behind him to then come help make the tackle. But when you get to Roger, who goes flying in, doesn't even slow Nate down. Nate's now one-on-one versus a safety with the entire field to make a juke on. And he pants our safety. You're dead. But again, play call was perfect. If Mitchell fills the gap there, that's like a loss or a minimal gain, right? It's fine. I mean, now I guess you could say it's not perfect because ideally you want a zone against a, a zone read, but it's addressed. You have two guys versus one. That's what you wanted the defensive caller. You had two guys versus one. You have everything addressed. Player execution lets you down. Put your arm around to Roger Mitchell. Listen, man, it's not your job to go flying in there and make a hero play. When we're a man, which you know you're a man, you're a veteran guy, you plug the hole and do your job. Then you help out your boy RJ, right? So that's good. Though. Those are good conversations you want to have. And that's why I'm saying those are the two biggest plays of the game. It's not a play design issue. It's not a coaching issue. That's a player issue. That's the kind of issues you want to have. Those are the things you can actually fix to get better as the season goes on. That's what you're looking for. And with any kind of competent team, you're not going to hold them to zero yards rushing. Not possible. Plays are going to be made. They have players, too, that can make plays. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to ask you about the freshmen. So, And you can add somebody else's mix if if they got significant minutes. But uh, Castell and then the three freshmen – Edge players, I guess we can lump them into that category. TJ Searcy, Kelby Collins, Cameron James, all fairly highly recruited. They were all out on the field at various points in you know pretty big situations. Anybody flash or man, oh man, actually that guy wasn't ready. No, no one wasn't ready out of that group, but Searcy flashed big time. Multiple notes on film review from him by himself. I mean, he looks like the real deal. Then you had some nice moments on film. Uh, you know, towards the end of the game where Collins had a really nice rush. But, you know, I think Cersei's the winner for game one. Like he he looked like he might have a really high upside. Quick, evasive, uh, multiple times, blew right past the line like they're standing still. Yeah, he flashed for sure. He flashed the most. So game one winner, it's it's going to be him from the freshman. But that's uh, good but news that nobody looked like no man, one was outmatched. Ready. No, you didn't. You didn't see on film like whoa, that was bad. So all those guys were able to play. But Cersei was like, oh, this guy could be a guy. All right, what about Castell? I mean, that's a big job. He's playing a lot of minutes, starting safety theoretically. Yeah, I thought he was fine. He didn't get a chance to. First of all, it's good when you're not talking about him that mm-hmm. often because you shouldn't be. Didn't really get a chance to do too much. Was in coverage on one play uh, that I thought he played really solid coverage on. They converted the pass, but he's right there. Uh, funneled him inside correctly. Footwork looked nice. Knew what he was doing. So for a freshman, very competent. And guy makes a nice catch. He's closing it down. I think on the film review, I basically mentioned that that's the kind of pass you want to give up as a completion. So he looks like they said he looks as advertised. I think competent and uh, and solid. We'll see more from him as time goes on, especially with teams that aren't a team that's missing all their starters like Utah will learn more. He's going to get challenged more with teams that can really pass. Like Tennessee, we will see where he is versus Tennessee. Right now, he looks looks competent, and I'm I'm playing him without reservation. 
we don't know how good he is yet at this stage of his career until he gets a better chance. Sure, past the first test. I think with all those guys, yeah. you want to get them out there. You're not worried about them yet. Not worried about no, Again, I mean, yes, I would all. agree. All right, several newcomers, transfers, playing a lot of snaps. Obviously, along the defensive line, we've talked about it a lot. Cam Jackson, Caleb Banks, the defensive tackle. Taraja Mitchell playing kind of starters minutes. So I think we saw Scooby Williams out there at first. We want to hear from him and Manny Nunnery, another linebacker transfer. Any of those guys especially stand out to you? So Banks had another, like, popped on a few rushes he had um, that was solid. But actually, I think the winner here might be surprising. And I thought Nunnery had a nice game. Hmm. And he's not the guy that – it was limited, but multiple times you're on film. Oh, that's a nice play. Oh, that was smart. Oh, that was good. Oh, we shut the block. That was nice. He he played well. Smart player, I think. He was in the right position. He held the edge correctly. He would he would get off the block when he needed to. Those are things we've seen Florida linebackers struggle with. So that's what I came away with this game, too, is those four guys. I mean, especially James, but also Mitchell, you know, limited somewhat, but in the right place for most time. Nunnery I liked. And even Scooby Williams, I thought, played well. Oh, I thought Scooby played really well. Yeah. He and, played really well. And again, he was the guy that maybe you had the most question marks about. Could he become an actual linebacker. So I think part of this performance is what was a weakness at times last year became, I don't know if I want to call it a strength yet, but shored up to the point where you don't, you're not worried about the linebacking unit, at least right now. No, they looked, like I said, that's the part you can't sleep on. We've been so linebacker deficient, right? Especially after losing Hopper, who was like a solo act, but man, Scooby and Shamar were doing some, and, and being used correctly by Coach Ham to combo them together. It was awesome watching them fill gaps. It was awesome watching them fill gaps with corners and safeties filling gaps behind them. Again, this is that's what a good defense does, right? They shoot a gap and have protection in a different gap, and then they have a backup behind that gap. That's three-level defense. We have not seen that. That was on display on film in this game. And these guys are working together to do their job. The gap control is just so much better. Uh, and I think we're going to see more out of, you know, the, the Bankses and Cam Jacksons of the world, depending on matchups. And I think for Mitchell, you get what you think you're going to get from him. He's a veteran guy. He scrapes well. He's a little bit limited with his movement, a little stiff. Uh, I think, obviously, a big a big mistake <clears throat> by him as a veteran of flying to that hole. I'm sure he's really kicking himself for that one. He knows better. But he's, he's a guy that I think is going to help Florida with depth. And he's going to allow, <clears throat> you know, Scooby to probably sit out on some plays that are obvious, like heavy running packages. Where he's, you know, Scooby's a little undersized still with that, but Scooby's quickness passing downs other times gives them some flexible options. So all in all, I think this is this is the most competent our linebacking core has been in several years, Alan. And I thought they already worked well together. It wasn't an obvious black hole we saw in the past. Uh, Wingo got a lot of playing time too. I think that's right. Fine, you know. But I think a big win for for the newcomers in general. They're all able to contribute at a level that. I think for where Florida is now is fine. Do you want the Mitchells and Nunneries on your team next year or, or the year after that? No. Like those are guys you're bridging to get to your more talented guys. But for right now, they're going to help Florida's football team where they are and they're understanding the system. So we've often lamented the star nickel position as just where we're getting strafed, right? They attack that repeatedly. I'm trying to think about a moment where I even noticed who was playing star because they were either doing their job or, you know, the 
there, Utah wasn't attacking that part of the field. So I don't even really have a recollection of what well, I'd say they played well or didn't play well, which I'll take. Yeah, and the film says that <clears throat> essentially Perkins is we, – we asked this question a lot in previous years. If you can just tell Perkins who to cover, the guy's so good at covering. But multiple of Florida's mishaps that some they got away with mm-hmm. where Perkins and someone else is covering a guy and someone's wide open is too many to say that's just coincidence from last year and this year. So I think Coach Ham has his plate full trying to figure out how to get a very talented man coverage guy like Perkins to, to know where the heck he's going and who he's covering when teams shift. That's a recurring problem. Uh, no issues with Jaden Hill. Very, very heady player. When he's out there, he knows where he's going and what he's doing. I think Perkins is the better coverage guy. So they're going to have to figure that part out, though. He cannot be blowing assignments. Sure. Which I think, I can never know for sure, I think he he did again in this game. So largely okay they didn't hit those guys but they they were there they were available utah kind of missed them a couple times so uh that's what you want on film is hey you avoided that thing let's be thankful for that let's not do that again let's get this right right so my intuition uh, was that there was some meat left on the bone from what utah could have done offensively with a more aggressive game plan or a more established quarterback and yeah i this is maybe where they have to be situational like if this is a situation where you can run out, um, you know, the guy who wants to cover well and you're uncertain about him, and this is a situation where I'm not sure what they're going to do. Maybe they're going to run the other guy out. That that gets tricky, and you could be wrong. And so you'd like both those guys to be competent and you could trust them, but until that, maybe they're going to have to manage that a little bit more. Okay, biggest issues moving forward. Is there anything that you watch? It's like, ah, when we were running zone, that was a little bit iffy. Uh, anything like that. I'll say for me, it was concerning that we weren't getting home on the pass rush. And not that there was never any pressure, but I would have liked to see more production. This might be something that we're just, this is going to be a problem all year when you're replacing a guy like Justice Boone with, with Sap, who's a fine player, but is not going to produce the kind of like pressure that, you would have hoped Boone was. Princely is a good player, maybe even great situationally, but is not a one-man wrecking crew. That's where I'd be. My biggest concern, what about you? Yeah, I think that's the edge like we talked about. Right when we lost Boone, that we don't have another edge guy. How does that work? I do think in this game, you you look at our our rates here. First of all, we played 52% of man defense. Can we just stop and celebrate that for a second? That's wild. All these years of me begging for man, and here we are, 52% man versus an inferior opponent, which is important because you may recall that cover one was was Barnes's worst. We took, we put, that's his worst, right? Thing mm-hmm. he faced, we played the most cover one. So I can, I'm happy to report for the first time in many, many years, the actual tactical plan we had, like mirrored almost exactly what the stats said we should have done. He was worst in zone versus cover three. And in this game, he was he was solid. He was seven for seven versus us in cover three. And that's what I want to bring up. For me, outside of the edge pressure, uh, we did struggle to pass off routes in zone correctly, which is understandable. That's a young defense. You got a bunch of new starters out there. We got to fix that. Uh, nothing that was like horrific, but a better quarterback, a better tight end. There were plays to be had out there and they would have confused us with their movement. Uh, they would have led to more passing yards for sure. So that's something to look for. We pressured 26% of the time in this game, uh, primarily five and six men, which was the recommendation, especially five men, which is largely what we did. I think if he could go back and do it again, he would have pressured more. I think if I'm guessing what 
Coach Hamill's thinking here is this quarterback's probably not really going to consistently complete passes versus man defense. I don't want to overbring pressure and have them gadget something up or have them beat me with a screen or something that might, you know, really go for a home run. Um, despite the fact they obviously had some home runs. So my thought there is I think in the future, Alan, we're gonna see Coach Ham as he as he develops back end trust with how we're going to play in the back end, that you're going to see probably more pressure if we're not getting there. Because he certainly believes in pressuring the quarterback. And he sees the film and says, you know, maybe this is our deficiency here. We need to see what we can do. Uh, that's something to watch as well. Uh, so, you know, all in all, though. For our first performance. For the first performance, the biggest issues aren't that big. It's more of like we need to see more to see what might become a big issue. But I think we all know. Like we said, that pass rush and losing Boone was so brutal. Pass rush is not going to be natural for us. We do not have another edge guy. Perhaps with what you saw on film from Cersei, he might he might have his snap count go up, as I think he probably should, based upon that one game there, because he was disruptive into the backfield. Um, but all that being said, the D-line was incredibly disruptive versus the run. Right. Multiple times that we had two and three players in the backfield almost immediately, which is a great sign. So there's also hope against teams that don't so run so much 12 personnel. There were 23 snaps in 12 personnel out of the 54. That's almost half the snaps for Utah. That's a lot of guys back there, plus a running back oftentimes max protecting. Perhaps the pressure will look different when you're facing a team that's not so pressure heavy. Then we'll really find out what this team can do. Yeah, I think, again, I wasn't expecting perfection. The It's really unfortunate the way the game started. Kind of put us on our heels a little bit as a team. You know, if if things go differently, maybe R.J. Moten picks off that pass because it was a it was floating a little bit. Oh yeah, he did not get all that ball. That's that was for sure. Right, and then all of a sudden, the whole vibe of the game is maybe different again. I, that won't make up for some of the even an incomplete pass there. I think the vibe of the game is different. Right. Now it's second and ten. The way we stop their running game, you probably stop them. But either way, football things are going to happen. You got to you got to bounce back handle. So even outside of that one play where Nate Johnson is. Um, you know, obviously scores a touchdown. He seemed to have some effectiveness there. Uh, meant to come back to this. Any other, any kind of concern like a running QB might give us a little bit of difficulty? I actually think they'll clean that up, and I want to give you this stat. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, so they had 13 attempts versus a seven-man box. Most of that was with the spread. They had 66 yards, uh, which is too many yards in 13 attempts, but 56 of them were after contact. That's important. What mm-hmm. that tells you is we were there 56 after contact. So that very well could have been they had 13 attempts for 15 yards. That would have been remarkable. So I think, again, that's a good stat because Florida largely tackled really well in this football game. For a first game, how many times have we talked about a million missed tackles? We are not talking about a million missed tackles. No. We had a few. You could almost argue a normal amount in a football game. So I love that stat. I'm looking at that stat thinking, man, that's, that's actually remarkable. They had 10 yards. That would have been it if we had tackled upon first contact. And 56 of that comes on one play. 30 is one play. So, you know, all in all, actually, I think there's there's a lot to like from what we saw in the debut uh, and things that they're going to feel, I think, excited about fixing and getting better communication on with, again, a significant test. I can't wait to watch Coach Ham go up against Tennessee because we all know what I think is the right game plan for me. But I can't wait to see what he does. Because if he does the right thing, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to be so geeked up with this guy. Because that's all you can do as a coach, right? He can't snap his fingers and give himself the best edge rusher and other stuff. But you can put your team 
with the best tactical plan and let them let them win or lose the game. And then we'll talk about that. And I think that's what he did. That's what I think he did in game one. He let the players decide their fate. That's all you can ask of from your coaches. And and amen to that for him so far. Um, I could be overhyping this debut, but it hit a lot of the things I like. And so right, it's it's pushing about. a lot of right buttons for you. I would agree. I mean, I there was nothing that I was overly concerned coming out of. And a lot of the things that I had the biggest question marks about either didn't get exposed in this game or were fine. Uh, so again, like the offense, this isn't the whole story on them. They could improve. The defense could improve, stay flat or get worse, depending on like what teams expose. All right. That Utah isn't capable of stressing you in all the ways that other teams might stress you. And to be fair, we said that Stevens could be a top 50. I'm not sitting here saying they're going to be top 20. We don't have the personnel for that yet. But top 50 would be a remarkable improvement from being 100th. Right. And, and so I think we're on the road to that. Yes. Okay. All right. Let's talk about special teams for a minute here. Um, this was brutal. Uh, it A failure in almost every way. Adam Mahalik, one of two. Right, and both from about thirty early young, low thirty yards there. We fielded at least two punts like inside the five yard line, which is you should never ever ever do. Crawshaw was fine, but also shanked one for twenty one yards. Had eight men on the field for a Utah field goal attempt. ETN, 23.5 kickoff return average. Often didn't feel like that gave us a plus. So, and then we've, we've talked a lot about the, you know, the penalty on special teams that extended a drive where they ultimate, ultimately scored. Uh, this was rough. It felt like maybe the entire game swung on special teams. And if you're a place like Florida where you're going to be attention to detail, program building, process oriented, this feels like, the opposite of what you want your special teams to look like. Now that, uh, you know, you're going to have a shank punt occasionally. You're going to miss a field goal. But it was when you look at that overall picture, it's maybe the worst special teams performance that I can remember in a while. It was a master class of disaster. <laughs> it's the best way that I can describe this. I mean, your field goal kicker misses one. Your punter, who we said was the best player on our special teams, absolutely shanks one, which will happen from time to time. But it, it all happens together. You you have a penalty where we're watching the game and couldn't hear the sound. A lot of people were there. Couldn't really hear the sound exactly right. And I saw the signal, and it was one of the few signals I didn't immediately know what the call was. And I'm like scrambling, like, hey, what, what was that call? What is the call? And that's because I can't recall the last time I've seen anything like that, where you have two of the same numbers on a punt return. I've seen it before. But in that moment, that magnitude, just unbelievable. And then you have, to cap it all off, you have eight guys in the field for the last Utah field goal where they kicked it anyway. And I'm sure looking back on it, Whittingham, a special teams guy who prides himself on, is probably thinking we should just go for this. Like they exactly. have eight guys on the field. We should be able to signal in something. If And I'm sure they of- could have. And they decided, no, you know what? We have enough bigger lead. Let's just let it go. So that's unreal. So yeah, master class, just a total master class here in all the wrong ways. Which of those do you think is like the worst? The worst one is the one, the two that you can control the most. You can't, your, your college kicker missing a kick, whatever. Your punter shacking a punt, whatever. Why? Those are players messing up. That's what your job is as a coach. Let them mess up. Man, the other ones, though, feel, you know, 
much more on the coaches. Obviously, the eight men, that's on the coaches. That's brutal. But the most egregious one to me, and this is something I'll never understand. If I'm a coach right now, Alan, let me tell you what I, what I don't do. You cannot, if you play for me, you cannot have the same number as someone else who has any chance ever of being on the field with you. I'm sorry. You can pick whatever the number you want. There's lots of numbers in the world. You pick a different one. You don't get it. You're not going to get it. Period. End of story. Because you know what I like doing? I like winning. And I don't want to add a, a risk without reward to my team. It's asinine that they allow two guys to wear number three that clearly could share the field at the same time. I know this took a late number change and the spreadsheet didn't get updated. And, but I mean, for all we know, that could have cost us the football game. Football is a crazy momentum sport with college kids. It swings on a, on, a, on a narrow little ledge. So that one, I think, is one that will always be just like unbelievable. I mean, how do you let that happen? So we haven't really talked about him yet. Trey Wilson. Actually, we didn't talk about the offensive. This is a, we should have talked about him already. We just sort of left the personnel for the big narrative. But yeah, Trey Wilson, the most anticipated freshman he on Florida's offense. Great at times. I would have loved to see him get twice as many. I think maybe did it come back on a hold where they gave him the ball down the sideline yes. and he made a guy miss and was gone. Came back on a uh, yeah. That was, was the Damian George hold. Yes. He looked sudden. He looked super explosive. I would want to see him have I don't care if they're gadget plays, get him the ball. Get him and ETN the ball as much yes. as possible. And who knows what he's gonna do with it. I don't know if he can run the full route tree yet, but I want to see that. I want to see more of that guy. For sure. What I what is a uh, concerning to me though, as a punt returner, which actually seems like he'd be a fantastic punt returner. I'm really love that they put him out there, but obviously he wasn't ready. I've known since I was nine years old that you put your heels on the ten yard line and the punt. If the punt is over your head, you let it go. You certainly don't feel it inside the five, and. That feels like he's had to have returned punts before in his life. Maybe he's just like, I'm so good, I don't care. You got to break him of that right now because you can't be fielding punts inside the five-yard line. No, and I think they hopefully will, but I'm I'm with you. We've talked about this before. It's so easy. Like, go outside right now with your kids or your friends and and tell your you know six-year-old kid, all right, I want you to stand on this line. And if you have to take any steps backwards when looking at this ball that I'm throwing to you, let it go. That's the only rule. Steps forwards, catch it. Don't move, catch it. Any steps backwards at all, you just let the ball go. Just let it go. Take a step backwards, let it go. It's pretty simple, but Florida's been plagued by this mm-hmm. uh, in Billy's tenure, and here we are again. And it does big questions for the, quote, game changers, which is now, I think, becoming the, the funniest yeah. thing. Well, it's you changing could, the game for sure. You could call this idea of, we don't call it special teams, we call it game changers. And it's changing the game in the wrong way for Florida like every single week. But yes, Alan, that was brutal to watch that happen multiple times. And I know, Trey, you're electric. You're going to do great things on the football field here for Florida with the ball in your hands. Those you have to let go. For sure. And I'm super excited about him. And I would actually love to see him field some punts and see what he can do. Oh, yeah. Keep him back there. Don't yeah. He needs to be back there. And he also needs to get the ball more. And also, like, no offense to Ricky Pearsall. I think he's a nice player. Mm-hmm. He's a nice player. He's not Trey. He's a, Ricky's a, a, a slot receiver that runs good routes and is fine. Well, this is, this is the problem of you having to depend that much on a player like Ricky Pearsall, who, if he's your third best receiver or fourth best receiver, you're like, that's great. That's what it should I be. I love him. Correct. He's probably overqualified for that in some ways. 
but that's he's getting less in attention. He's probably ripping people up. We're like, this guy should be the best guy. Well, I was like, he wouldn't be if you didn't have anybody else, right? Correct. If he was your third or fourth best guy, I love it. As by far the most accomplished person, yeah, that's just too big of a burden. And for him. I, again, I think that's where Urban would be wise. Be like, look, you know what? This guy's electric. I'm getting him the ball. I'm finding a way to get these guys the ball. And uh, I think you got to find ways to get him the ball. It's not hard to to make that happen. We haven't talked about Deion Sanders in Colorado yet. We'll save that. But mm. they did a great job of getting their guys the ball. And I think if you're Florida, you need, you get to find ways to get your playmakers the ball. So I'm glad you mentioned Trey. Uh, we, you know, Eugene Wilson, for those of you that don't know, everyone seems to call him Trey. Um, he's the third. So there you go with that. But glad you brought him in there because, yeah, he flashed. He flashed nicely on offense. And Caleb Douglas had a great game on offense, too, obviously. I think he, yeah, he looked nice out there caught too. everything thrown his way. Hands looked good. Had a really great runner. catch. For the touchdown. Great. And also a great catch on a really low ball that mm-hmm. uh, was thrown in, snuck in, uh, in between traffic there on a slant route that was crucial. So he looked really nice. So, again, I think the receivers, especially the younger guys, I think they had a nice little debut. They deserve to, to get into the game plan more than what we saw. Okay. In terms of coaching decisions, we talked about the time management on the third and fourth quarter drives, special teams. Uh Anything yeah. else? That I was wanted to ask you this question because yeah. it made the round. So we declined a penalty to allow Utah to kick a field goal that would have pushed the score to 16 points. So still two scores. It would have been 27-11. You're down 16. It's not three scores, which would have been a mortal sin. Would you have rather let them have third and 19 from the Florida 7? Seven, seven, I mean, start the 47, where if they get you know 10 yards, then you're, you're back to where you were more. It's a closer field goal. Or would you rather have had them just kick the field goal there? I feel like at the moment I I thought decline it, and then in, on reflecting it, I became less certain. Uh, I think the way the defense was playing, I, I've been more comfortable declining it. Would you? Do you wish we would have declined it? No, I think this. There's a nuanced thing that I didn't see people addressing, which is why I want to bring this up: is the time. Yes. So because we we criminally messed up time wise, if we decline the penalty, they run another play. Mm-hmm. That's the true. clock starts running again. Then the play is run. Then it runs again for fourth down. Then they punt the ball. There's potentially another minute taken off the clock in that situation. So I think if I had the gun to my head, 55-yarder from a college kid where I get a minute of time and I'm still down two scores, I probably do that. I don't think Billy was thinking that per se. I hope he was, (laughs) but... No, you're right. The the, the time that element time is the compelling factor. became the big element there because the clock still runs. They run a play. It runs again. That's a whole other minute at least. And again, there's no guarantee that you stop them for fewer than 10 yards. I think our defense, what I bank on our defense. So that being said, had the time not been a factor there, 100% I'm declining. the. I mean, I'm, I'm accepting the penalty and I'm pushing it back. The way our defense is playing, absolutely I am. But the time became interesting there. And it became way more interesting when Florida chose to run a four-minute offense rather than mm-hmm. a two-minute offense. Um, so, yeah, I, I basically don't think that was the automatic dunk on Billy for a bad choice there. Because, again, it's not three scores. It's still two. Yes, two extra. I mean, two conversions needed. Two two-point conversions needed is not ideal. Uh, but all in all, it didn't affect the end of the game in this case. But there's a fun discussion point for you, coaching-wise. Okay. I want to play a little game called Avoiding Week 1 Overreactions. So we left last year, the Utah game, being like, wow, rapid rise and rebuild here. We just beat Utah in an amazing game. You know, 
saw some limitations there, but could not be more excited. And then come out and lay an absolute egg against Kentucky. One of the worst losses I've ever watched in person. In terms and of almost at USF the week before. And at you, home, yeah. Yeah, and so much so that you, like, was you see USF afterward? I thought it was before, but maybe you're right. I think it was Kentucky. It was the next <laughs> it all blurs together. It was such a bad stretch. <laughs> but so much so that you left the stadium and you sent a very rare ill-advised, like, <laughs> tweet about we're over gun outmatched or whatever so i'm glad you brought that up i did yes that's right and that was when i reaffirmed our policy of never tweeting anything out at any point yes um so i don't want it, to it's impossible not to have like even some slight overreactions because you only have one data point but here's what i want to say what are we most likely overreacting to the defense being better than we think or the offense being worse than we think oh I think, oh man, I think for, for many Gator fans, they're probably overreacting to the offense being worse than they think because that was about the bottom of the performance level for Billy's offenses. I think for me, I'm probably more likely overreacting to the defense being better than they actually might wind up being just because I'm basing my offense on all 14 games of something I've seen. I've seen Coach Amper one game. So that's it's fair that that's wrong, but I I don't think that's true. But I'm I'm imagining maybe other fans are are flipping that around. I don't know for sure, but I think that the takeaway point in this there is still an entire season here. Obviously, things can turn around. As we said in the podcast, we view everything on a probability curve. The probability that Billy's offense takes a significant swing upwards is very small. Hence, the fear that we have. Uh, and that's why I think the season could be, you know, buckle your seatbelt could be a long ride. Um, but that also doesn't mean that Billy shouldn't be the head coach. Those are different things. Right. I don't that th- would be a major overreaction is right. fire him right now and buy him out because it's a three-legged stool. And two of the legs I think he's doing really well at, recruiting and organizational culture building. The third one is a problem. It's also the easiest one to fix. Of those true. three problems, which problem do you want to have? You want to have this problem. You can hire a great offensive coordinator. You can't culture build easily, and you definitely can't recruit easily. So in all reality, it's the best stool weakness that he has, so to speak. That's the most fixable one. We'll continue to talk more about Billy's stool weaknesses um, <laughs> as the season goes on. I would agree. I think the overreaction for me is the offense is I probably mirror a little bit more yeah, the, the offense is going to look this bad every week. I don't think that that's going to be the case. I don't think teams aren't as well coached as Utah is on, on defense. They are good every year. And they were doing some things to us that I think we're going to have to react to, and we'll see how we do. So there's a big chance for improvement. Again, I don't think, it. again, the like hockey stick or become a fantastic offense is probably isn't there. But I, I do think you're right that this is probably towards the bottom. And it's weird. It, it's a weird identity thing for us that we only – gave our best two backs 10 carries. I don't think that's going to remain. I don't know if that's going to create a lot more efficiency on offense, but I don't think that'll be the case moving forward. So that's probably the overreaction that they're not probably going to be as bad as they were week one. I'm hopefully you're not overreacting at all, but maybe you are. We'll see. Um, Okay. What this brings up, we've talked about the offensive um, philosophy here and as Billy being the offensive coordinator, there's another organizational strategy pieces that we've, we've kind of hit on one. There's no special teams coach that we, we employ an analyst, as you said, the game changer analyst, who's not an on-field coach, 
per like NCAA rules, you can only have 10 of them. And we use two of those spots for offensive line coaches. Now this runs counter to how most operations go. Most like coaching staffs are aligned. When this happened, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But as I thought about it, I really liked it, right? This is basically the largest position group on your team, you know, and you need a ton of guys to have depth at the offensive line. Yeah, the largest being the O-line. Yeah, exactly. The offensive line is the largest position group. So having two coaches is, it actually makes a lot of sense in recruiting wise and in giving individual attention to all of those guys up and down the depth chart. Now, what you're hoping for is that you get plus results, right? And again, those guys don't can be magic. And again, you have to run the right two offensive line coaches. But as a strategy, I like it potentially. It's not paying the most dividends right now and not having a special teams coach or at least, you know, someone on the staff, on field staff being the special teams coach is not paying dividends right now. I don't know actually how they account for that on game day. Who's responsible for making certain calls and doing certain things. I don't know if that's public information. Um, but those two strategies are divergent from like the main line, which again, I don't, you don't have to be a sheep, right? If you think you have something better that gives you a competitive advantage, absolutely do it. But right now I don't, I think we're seeing the bottom end of those results. And I think you could have two O line coaches. If your head coach wasn't, responsible for anything and then he can check in with all of your departments and he can actually just take a lot of brunt of special teams because that is in the modern football era pretty straightforward kickoffs are basically irrelevant then you have punt team and field goal units field goal units they operate themselves so you could have a coach an analyst who's basically like your practice coach and then you're making all the calls on the right you make the calls but you also check in oversee it sure you know, make sure things look good on film correct it fix it get you you handle the groupings with your analyst which i'm sure now billy just looks at it for a second because he's too occupied with other stuff okay you got this i trust you uh, but again it is unconventional and anytime you're unconventional and you're getting the bad results florida's getting not only on special teams but also on the offensive line you know, this season, right? With two of them, people are going to ask questions. So I was always of the opinion from the beginning, I didn't like this largely because I didn't like the fact, again, that Billy was going to handle all the offensive stuff. I could be more fine with it if we talked about the scenario happening where you have an actual offensive staff and then you have your special teams coach largely being your head coach who's helping your analysts. But People are going to question the heck out of this all year long. And if the O-line stays to be poor, special teams does anything remotely like what it did in this game, the questions will come faster and more furious, as will should you really be the offensive mastermind. Even though he's not, you know, Billy's not the offensive coordinator by title. I think everyone knows it's his offense entirely and sales a figurehead. So we'll, we'll see what happens. I don't like... In general, I'll end with this on the subject. Pick any sport and look at what, let's say, 95 plus percent of the pros are doing, especially the ones who win a lot on a certain skill. If you are not doing that skill and you are not very quickly beating 95% of those pros and it's probably hurting you, you need to really ask yourself why you are so far outside of the norm. Sometimes you're innovating and what you've created will become the norm and they're all wrong. Most of the time you're wrong and you should just copy the skill that's already become the best way to do something. This will be something that remains to be seen because the idea could work. As you said, it could work. But right now 
Florida special teams have been brutal for one year and one game into this tenure. Right. And that the as far as the two O-line coaches, again, there's the strategy and then there's implementation of the strategy. If you don't have the right two coaches, then it doesn't matter that that's a good idea or not. And I love it. And there's some in, there all, there's always innovation. Right? I think about Chip Kelly at Oregon. It's like, what if we just went fast all the time? No one else is doing this at this level. Basically, he touched off a revolution in college football in a lot of ways. And again, he had his own limitations as a coach. But in that area, he was like, I think I found a competitive advantage here. I'm going to push this to its limit. So again, I just because you're doing something different, I don't want to be like, oh, you you know, the you're just going to invite more criticism. It's true, but it doesn't mean you don't you shouldn't do it. So yeah, absolutely. Okay. I love innovation. You do too. I'm a big supporter of it. You just got to look at the data and then ask yourself the hard questions. All right. Um, the last note in here, and you've already said this, like that this loss is not on the players. This is about some of the coaching and strategy elements of what was happening here on yeah. the field. Yeah, and that's the worst case scenario. That's why I put it last. For me, ever since we started this podcast, the rallying cry was the best coaches, the losses occur because the players get to lose the game playing against other players. That's the fun of sports, right? You never as a coach want to get up there or in behind closed doors and know that that loss was largely caused by you, whether it's tactics, strategy, just negligence, whatever. And this loss to me was not in the players, and that sucks. You hate those kind of losses. That's really frustrating. Uh, whereas you heard us highlight the defense where I think those tactical losses were on the players, and that's great. That's actually great. Never beat up a player. These are still, even though they're making money and they're professionals now in my mind, in reality, they're still young men. And they're still relatively inexperienced at this level of football. So I love baseball. One last baseball analogy. If you're watching your favorite draftee in minor league baseball, you expect him to make a lot of mistakes. He's a professional getting paid a lot of money, but he's not a big leaguer yet. That's what college football still is. So view it that way. And again, you want those players to learn from their mistakes and get better. And that's how your football team gets better. So the coaches need to get their act together and not have more losses be on themselves, but instead flip that onus to the players. That's what makes us happy here in the pod. All right. Let's talk about the other results from week one. I believe these uh, totals are correct here that now we are equal at five and seven through two weeks. I think this is the correct total. Yeah, because there's not 12 games on here. So we had a, you know, we had a rough go of it this week again. I had a better go of it than you did. Yes. So let's start off with Nebraska at Minnesota. Man, no matter who's the coach, Nebraska just cannot win in these one-score games. Like, Even when they have the lead at the end. Like and one in Minnesota walks them down. Yeah. In one-score games, they lose 10-13. to 13. That had to be super painful for the Nebraska faithful, who are awesome. That If you didn't see them putting 90,000 people in the stadium to watch a women's volleyball game, that's awesome. So I want Nebraska to be good. They have a great fan base, but, man, this was torture for them. All right. The surprise of the day, maybe, or if you're Deion Sanders, the you maybe you were believing all along. Colorado at TCU. Colorado is a twenty point five favorite. You pick Colorado. Good job by you. I was not a believer. They win 45-42. I watched most of this game. Super impressed by Colorado. Yeah, what a great week one football game, by the yeah. way. I mean, that felt like a playoff game. The atmosphere, the back-and-forth nature of it all, just really fun stuff. This is unbelievable. It's hard to put this in context, Alan. 69 scholarship players are new 
for Colorado. 83, I think, total new players, counting walk-ons, preferred walk-ons, et cetera, into this program. Colorado was 1-11 last year. It took them until the middle of the season to score as many touchdowns as they scored in that first game. Um, there's a whole bunch of other baskets of stats that are mind-blowing of what Dion just pulled off. Now, a lot of this has to do with the fact that, obviously, his son is, in fact, a very capable quarterback. Most people don't get to do that with their first spot. And also, the coup he pulled getting Travis Hunter. And then this is what I want to highlight here. Being ballsy enough to play him both ways and feature his star player like that led to this win. If Travis Hunter plays one way, they don't win this game. I mean, how many? He had 11 receptions. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. 11 receptions. And on defense, he had a pick. Pass multiple breakups. pass breakups. He's a lockdown corner. I mean, that's outrageous. And they won. So I think for him, amazing moment. You said something, Alan, I want to ask you about now here on the pod. You had mentioned, man, this is amazing for Colorado and Dion, but seemingly this is like so bad for other college football coaches. So here's what the lesson that I'm worried that people are going to take away or maybe implement is this is how you should handle your modern roster construction is clean out the entire team. Cause we used to tell kids, yeah, pick your school based on the school, not on the coach. Cause you might be there longer than him. Where do you want to go to school? And to get just forced into the portal, like a lot of these guys were just, I don't love that. I don't love that for them. I don't love that for college football. I mean, if people want to leave, they can leave, but I don't think that was the way it went down. Obviously, he didn't honor a lot of the commitments of previous scholarship players, which the university president basically told them, like, we will honor your scholarship, like, commitment. And, you know, Dion is a special guy. I think this is going to happen again. Other people will try this, and I don't think it's going to go as well. And you could just completely create. If you bring in 63 guys and it doesn't go out, you will completely crater your program. So I just feel like we're in for a lot of bad copycats of this. And it's going to go really poorly for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that that this is we talked about this when Dion was doing it, that this is I don't blame Dion for this to a certain degree. I do blame it on him for not recognizing that the institution has made a commitment to these players. And I understand the angle that if I'm the coach and these players do not want to be in my program, I do not think I can win with them. And I'm in a world where guys are getting money. Are they not professional athletes? That's the mentality. In which case, why do I keep this guy if he's getting a benefit monetarily, whatever else, but that's, that's the broken world that we're living in. And Dion just pushed the limit and said, I don't want these guys. I can't win with them. My job's here to win. You're paying me to win. I'm going to win. And he brings in everyone else. You get some rules, you can begin to clean that stuff up. You get some contracts, which you and I have been begging for with these athletes and the institutions themselves because institutions should be the ones holding the contract. Simple example, if the Dolphins, I'm a fan of, fire everyone tomorrow, the players still have contracts with the Dolphins. It doesn't matter that all the coaching staff is gone. It doesn't matter the GM is gone. It doesn't matter the front office is and gone. And your salary cap is you couldn't bring in that many players because you'd have right? infinite dead money. But in even cap. in a world without a salary cap, your contract is with the organization. But the organizations have no power, basically. And now here comes Dion and exploiting this head coach as the god, like figure, does whatever they want, overrules school type stuff because Colorado sees this as a way to relevance. And everyone knows through lots of studies that college, college football leads to higher enrollment. 
Colorado is now the most talked about football program in the country. That is going to lead to more students wanting to go there, which leads to more revenue for Colorado. So they're all in this together. It's all jacked up. But I think your point is most appropriate, Alan. You can look in pro sports and you can see total rebuilds all the time. They generally take much more time than whatever Dion's pulled off of this one win. Now, we don't know what the rest of the year looks like, but still pretty remarkable. Secondarily speaking, um, this idea of like, you know, knowing that you can blow your whole culture up is a good one when it's a losing culture. It is a good one. Like a lot of that, he's probably right about. A lot of these kids probably did have over time embraced a losing mentality. They had exposed to a lot of bad seasons. Colorado had been bad for a while. And it is right sometimes to move them along. Not in the way Dion did it, right? I think you want to be a, a solid humanitarian. You want to love your neighbor as yourself. You want to say, hey, look, you know, I'm not sure this program is for you. Let me help you find other opportunities. I don't think this is the right culture fit or whatever. He kind of made a show out of it. Like you guys are trash and you're all gone. And this, you know, that's who Dion is. But your point stands. It's already affecting Florida fans watching the success Colorado's had immediately. It's certainly affecting other schools who don't have good offenses with how quickly Colorado went from a horrible offense to a very competent one. They also hired a very creative offensive coordinator. Right, so here's the thing they did. That that's maybe, brilliant. Yes, they took, and this is a great move from Sean Lewis, who came over from Kent State, who was a head coach and took the OC job at Colorado, which is an unorthodox move. But the fact that he saw the wisdom in that and is now – you know, probably in line for another better head coach job if this continues. Oh, I mean, if this continues at all, he's going to be the hottest coordinator name there is. And he took that risk. And that's what Dion can do for you. And Dion's been a winner in everything he's done. That's who Dion is uh, when it comes to athletics. The guy wins. So either way, sensational story. Unbelievable that Colorado pulled this off, whether the ethics are good, bad, or indifferent. Just in, just really in the in the landscape of all sports, it's hard to find parallels where someone fired an entire team brought in an entire other one, and so quickly beat a competent right. program. because this could have gone really, really badly. Too. Oh, man, it could have been lost by a million. And again, a 20.5-point spread is no joke. It's, I mean, that's that's unreal. So we'll see what Colorado does in the future. They have Nebraska this week. But, man, wild start to the season for them. All right, Boise State at Washington. Washington wipes the floor with them. I was way wrong on this. You were too. 56-19. Washington's offense is legit. And... I think I was underselling them again. This is this is, we're game one here. They could come back to earth, but man, they could be making some noise for sure. Yeah, a, a popular dark horse candidate. I was fading them some because they lost a lot of other players. They still have Penix, obviously, who's a baller on offense. It's a great start to the season from the Pac-12. Allen sneaky for their last year. They're going to yeah. go out with a bang. I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be watching a lot of the Pac-12, especially Pac-12 after dark. There's a lot of compelling games on that schedule Washington, this year. Washington, Oregon, Oregon State. There's yes. a lot of, I'm not to mention USC. UCLA, USC. I mean, this is one of the best years in recent memory for the Pac-12. Oh, and they're man. going to go out almost on like a, they're almost on a resurgent high as a conference. And they've blown it all up. And now they're going different ways. Man, I feel so bad for Washington State, Oregon State getting left out in the cold. Anyway, that's a discussion for another time. All right. Penn State does the job. They looked pretty good. Drew Aller, their new fresh, their sophomore quarterback, looks pretty looks pretty good. I don't know. I, I don't know if he'll keep that up, but he looked really nice. They win 38-15. Yeah, good win for them. And they're favored by 20 and a half to yeah. cover the spread. They do what they're supposed to do. But again, for a Penn State team that I think can sometimes stub their toe, a good start to the season. We were both wrong about this next one. North Carolina really takes it to South Carolina, 31-17. This was really close early. 
And then they didn't have answers for Drake May and the Tar Heels. No, they didn't, but they certainly had answers for Spencer Rattler in the offense in the second half. They really put the clamps down on them and uh, just did not allow South Carolina to, to score any more other than the one more field goal. And that's a good win by North Carolina. And look, good old Mac Brown. I mean, you know, left for dead after Texas, comes back to North Carolina. He's recruiting really well, way above their baseline. And yeah. now he's beating his border school who had a lot of preseason panache in the sec and uh yeah that's a the acc nice little start here to the season for them and you know south Carolina is a little bit jekyll and hyde i don't think that this probably like tells the story of their season they could come out next week and beat somebody that they're not supposed to or two weeks or whatever but yeah not a great look for them week one okay the game of the weekend which you and i were both quite wrong on and i hate to say this fsu looked fantastic in this game they win 45-24. I mean, LSU should have been up big in the first half. They were repeatedly shooting themselves in the foot. But in the second half, LSU just put it on them. I mean, FSU put it on them. Yeah, so this was a shocking result to me. Uh, I didn't, you know, we talked about LSU and kind of the, the preview of the season over under, talent on the roster, Brian Kelly's job as a coach, the competency he brings to a football program. Florida State really kind of being under-talented but having productive starters, which you talked about. It's important to mix those two things together as we kind of did with them. Mike Norvell, the guy who was tremendously successful as an offensive coach, obviously at Memphis, a guy that I liked when they hired him for that reason. I thought he matched the culture of the state of Florida, pulling in recruits. Bad COVID year, which now it looks like if you throw the first COVID year out and you look at his trend arc, it's more compelling. This would be year three of his three-year test if you say COVID was a world anomaly. Don't even count it, right? This is year three and he's emerging. It is still one game, a lot of season left for Florida State, but they are far more threatening than I imagined in my mind. I really thought LSU was going to take care of business in this game. Uh, not true, completely not true. I came into this game feeling like both these teams were a little bit overvalued, and I think I was kind of right on LSU, but I was wrong on FSU. Now, this, again, they could come back to earth a little bit. I think they're really talented at a lot of spots, with not a lot of depth. So if they take injuries to the wrong guys, they could become very mortal. So we'll have to see how that goes for them. All right, Clemson at Duke tonight. We both picked Clemson. We'll see how that goes. A few other results here. Iowa scores 24. I don't know if we talked about this yet on the podcast, but they we have, did. We did. We did. We right. So we they have to score the 25. Yes, they did that. not. Which so, is amazing, amazing. All year long, it's going to be this watch. So now they have, they're a little bit low. They have to score a little bit more than and 25. And it's important to know they scored 24 against by far the worst defense on their entire schedule. That should be noted. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Okay. TJ Finley, the ex-Auburn, ex-LSU QB, resurfaces at Texas State, and they beat Baylor 42-31. This is a shocker. Unbelievable. Baylor had like so much momentum. Uh, with Dave Aranda leading them. And now it's like the wheels have fallen off last year to now this in game one. I don't, I mean, I don't know how you explain this. That's a bad, bad loss for Baylor. Not good. Okay. Well, why don't we look at this, the rest of the SEC briefly, James? Why don't you take us through the SEC roundup? Let's do it right now. A lot of the SEC was in action, although really more of like inaction based on who they played. Uh, South Dakota at Missouri. Missouri takes care of business 
Yep. Keep it rolling. UT Martin at Georgia. Georgia 48-7. A classic Georgia win, I feel. Slow start on offense, kind of just bumbling along. Yeah, we'll have to see. Carson Beck didn't maybe wow everyone, but I don't know that he needed to. Yeah. Middle Tennessee at Alabama, 56-7. Joe Milton was headlining a lot of people's talk about how sensational he looked at quarterback, drawing comparisons to Cam Newton with his opening you know, Jalen Milrow, line. maybe. Yeah, Milrow, sorry. I say Milton. Yeah, I'm That's combining the next Joe one. Milton and yeah, others. Um, but yeah, Jalen, a guy who I think I have serious questions still about, did look infinitely more competent mm-hmm. against a wildly overmatched opponent. So maybe they've got him figured out over there. I don't think so because Nick Saban didn't want to declare a quarterback. So keep an eye on that. But obviously people were hyped Super about athletic. People were hyped about how he looked in game one. All right, now Joe Milton of Tennessee. Uh, they take care of Virginia 49-13. Despite this, I got several texts from people saying Tennessee looks soft, overrated, and beatable, which makes me laugh uh, in general, given how Florida looked. But either way, any thoughts from that one? Yeah, you know, we'll have to see if Milton can come through in those big moments. You know, obviously massive arm. You know, Virginia's not very good, and they're not going to be very good. So not the – I mean, it's obviously more of a test than like UT Martin, but – um, we'll see. I think people are going to continue to have question marks about Tennessee until they prove it. We'll find out. Mercer at Ole Miss, 73 to 7. Good job, Ole Miss. Nice. Yeah. There you go. New Mexico at Texas A&M, 52 to 10. Yeah. Hey, they, I think they'll take the points no matter what. Oh, yeah. I think if you're an AM fan, you were just hoping for any kind of scoring consistency. Keep an eye on that one. Ball State at Kentucky, 44 14. Sure. Woohoo. Western Carolina at Arkansas, 56-13. Yeah, all these SEC teams putting up big points. Now, the ones that did play, I think notable opponents like all lost. Yeah. So That's right. The SEC looks a little sus if you're looking at the notable opponent ledger. UMass at Auburn, 59-14. Hugh Freeze back in action. Yeah, and UMass looked spunky the previous week. And, uh, you know, you're wondering, is that how they're going to look against Auburn? Auburn handled them. Uh, Hugh Freeze, uh, again, a lot of expectations on the planes for him to get a relatively quick turnaround. We'll see. Southeast Louisiana at Mississippi State. Mississippi State wins 48-7, to and they ran the ball a lot, which is obviously... Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Alabama A&M at Vandy. Vandy, 2-0, Allen, ahead of the Florida Gators in the standings, 47-13. <laughs> Good job, Vandy. All right, Daytona Steve, week one bets. He was correct with Florida scoring points in the first quarter. Fresno State beating Purdue. Utah State, Iowa hitting the under. He was wrong about South Carolina beating UNC and LSU beating Florida State. He ended up the week positive $10.58. Good job. Daytona, Daytona Steve went from throwing like $15 or $20 bets to win you know, $500,000 to winning 10 or 15 bucks per pop. He's really managing his payroll correctly. He's trying to take that 300 bucks and make it 1000 by the end of the year. Stay tuned for what he's got on tap for week two. I think the more cigs he smokes, the better he gets, and he's been on a heater. He's, he's, he's hey, just it's a, it's a good start. It. It's a good start for him. You know, he probably saw a few dogs uh, have a good race, and he really got some vibes. He loved so, it. so again, stay tuned for his bets this week. No coaching corners. None got sent to me. You don't there. send it to me. They're not going to happen. So uh, send me your coaching corners for this upcoming weekend. I think a lot of you are probably like I was, and they were just like, I, I, "Football is frustrating, and I don't even want to know what's happening with other teams because what's happened with Florida is blah." All right, now let's read off some patrons as we love to do. This is, again, starting back in the year 2017, coming all the way up to today, giving due honor and respect to those who have supported our efforts to bring you this content. All right, a lot of familiar names on this list. I love it. Evan Davis, Keith Copenhaver, Esteban, Zachary David Helmuth, 
Elliot Parrish, Mark Raglan, Adam Hetrick, Stephen, Eccentricity.ll, Andrew F., Theodore Lightborn, Zach Sparks, Carl Gorski, Jay McWhorter, Scott Poyer, Nick Hess, Travis Young, all the way over in Northern Ireland, or was probably at the time, Carly McMullen, obviously we talk about her every week, Kevin Davis II, Ryan Erica Belmore, Rick Kingsley, what's up? Ryan Gilbert, Stephen Weinmiller, Jeffrey Hoy, Jeff, Josh Ball, Ross Finkel, David McElwaney. Cameron McCaskill, Sam Coppinger. What up, Sam? David Evans, Warren Bucknam. Try and Dewey. Yeah, Try and Dewey. It's like Try and Dewey or Try and Dewey. I think it's Try and Dewey. Uh, Andrew Bergen, Davis Hale. Yep. Kip Hop, Cody St. Ange, Brett Magnuson, uh, Eric Collar, Ben Coppinger. Let's go, Coppinger fam representing. Jared Brunson, Ed Iman, Sean Gilmore, Matthew McGowan, Jack, Garrett Pignotti, Jeremy Bloor, Cody, Cody Flitcraft, and Ballard Jones. So there we have it. Thank you for being such long-standing patrons of this pod. It is now time for a couple of live reads. One of my favorite segments, honestly. It always is fun. Uh, AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that is supporting our pod this season, and they support whole body health. Uh, as you may have already heard, we gave it a try because they sponsored our podcast. It is not a green strength, as they'll be quick to tell you. It does, in fact, mix multiple supplements together into a one-stop shop that you can drink once a day. The taste, I would say, is surprisingly to borderline shockingly nice. Given that the drink itself does look green, uh, it does taste quite a bit better than its presentation visually. I like drinking it in the morning before breakfast as it gets my day started off correctly and it gives my body what it needs to face whatever I'm going through, including terrible gator losses and or fun podcast days like this one. If a comprehensive solution is what you're looking for from your supplement routine, then give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your very first purchase. Simply go to drinkag1.com slash GNFP drinkag1.com slash GNFP. Check it out. The link we posted in the description. Alan, tell us once again about football coach. Football coach college dynasty, a game developed by a Florida grad and GNFP listener and a donor, as you've <laughs> I love that. I make you say that each week, by the way, donor. someone who gives a donation football coach college dynasty is the ultimate college football management game for PC with a 97% positive rating on steam. Be a coach, create game plans, call plays, recruit players, develop your team, compete for national championships, featuring everything you love about college football, including including conference realignment, always a fun topic, school love, boosters, love that. <laughs> official visits for recruits, a transfer portal, even NIL. Football Coach College Dynasty is available now on Steam for $11.99. Start your season today. And let's start with some McNeese State prep. They are an FCS team. There is no line for this game. I just looked for a new a one again, but there isn't. Nope, no line for the FCS battles versus big opponents sometimes. Yep. And perhaps they don't want to make a line because they're like, well, how many points will Florida score versus an FCS team? We can't take that risk. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's at 730 in the swamp. Last year, Mini State was 4-7. and seven. They just lost last week 52-34 to 34 to powerhouse Tarleton State. Tarleton State. I love it. You know they're a juggernaut. All right, big homies culture corner. Let's just ping pong back and forth. Okay. I'll start, Alan, then you take us to the finish. So the background, how many of you know where McNeese State University is? If you said Louisiana, you are correct. If you didn't, you'd be like me, and I did not know that. So I love learning these things from big homie. Thank you, big homie. They are the Cowboys, a.k.a. the Pokes. 
They were opened as a university in 1939 and first named the Lake Charles Junior College. So they went from junior college to actual four-year school. And it was a subdivision of LSU. The first mascot of McNeese was a Palomino pony named Mac. After Mac's actual demise, he was a real <laughs> pony. And several subsequent <laughs> replacement ponies. Man, I'm loving this right now. In the mid-1940s, the basketball team decided to choose the Cowboy as the mascot. Due to the popularity of rodeos and the fact that the McNeese campus was formerly a farm. That well, seems reasonable. The initial rendition of the school mascot was a student dressed in cowboy gear riding a horse. Then in 1982, Rowdy, the mascot we know and love today, was born. <laughs> Rowdy love. was named after Clint Eastwood's character on the Rawhide television show. I mean, this is this is great stuff. I mean, I'm, I have a permanent smile on my face here. According to the legend on the university's website, Rowdy was a cattle drive driven out west, I guess, when he stopped in Lake Charles and decided to stay. So he was on a cattle drive, heading out west, stopped in Lake Charles, permanent home. That's what happened. We have a great shot of Rowdy. You can Google him. Uh, he looks like he was on a cattle drive and never left Louisiana. Tell us about some players that are in the NFL from McNeese State. So they've had 18 players drafted. That's not bad. That seems like think. a lot, yeah. actually, for an FCS school. And two taken in the first round. Which one, seems unbelievable. Yeah, so one in 84 and one in 91. And Leonard Smith was the defensive back taken 17th overall in 91. He's a 2014 NCAA Hall of Fame inductee. So good job by him. So if you ever remember McNeese State, you probably remember this moment. They actually have the largest margin of victory, 32 points by an FCS school over an FBS team when they defeated USF 53-21 to in the 2013 season opener. Good job, USF. How about that? The Cowboys Stadium is nicknamed The Hole. That's right, The Hole. It seats 17,610 people. It is one of the most intimidating FCS stadiums in the country, the hole is nestled 12 feet below normal ground level and was created over 80,000 cubic yards of soil I love it. being removed. Put that thing underground. The hole, baby. Look at that. How about that? All right. And the fan's reputation, Go Pokes, spelled in the Louisiana way as you'd imagine, is the common cheer for the fan base, a.k.a. Poke Nation. Hopefully they have a Poke Nation podcast. Uh, go <laughs> is not a word in French. Common misunderstanding. It is actually a misspelling of a lays. Which is, the, which is the LA. There you go. See, Alan has lived in Paris. That's how he knows that is LA. Whereas me, uh, Mon Francais, ne, Babon. So <laughs> got a whole lot of nothing. Uh, but LA, which is the imperative form of the verb allure, meaning go. So I should have handled that part of it. Sorry. You should have. But no, it's more fun for me to say that. So for all you French speakers out there, uh, je suis désolé. That's good. That means I'm sorry if you aren't sure. That's okay. Right. I know uh, a few things, but not all things. Gary Goff, the head coach, is in his, his second year. Uh, Florida has a slight talent advantage. Um, <laughs> we're not going to really talk too much about knows. McNeese State here. Um, they have some guys who are coaching them. Their quarterback is a guy. A lot, named- of, a lot of new guys. I yeah. would say their their coaching staff is almost entirely new. So actually, it's a battle of two second year coaches with all new coaching staffs. There you go. QB is named Nate Glantz. Six oh two oh six. So he's basically a regular sized human playing quarterback. It's always important to note that when you see him out there, he's going to look like a midget because regular sized people, even tall people in the regular world, look tiny on a football field. Running back D'Angelo Durham, wide receiver Jihad Marks, other wide receiver Cam Thomas had a kickoff return TD last week. Yeah, listen to the third down stats. Get ready. Yeah, four of nineteen on third down. Not good. Not good. Three of four on fourth down though. So they're really playing for fourth down. In fact, maybe they want to get to more fourth downs. Okay, so last week the defense gave up 52 points 
554 yards allowed, 344 passing, allowed 30 first downs. That's unbelievable. 30 first downs. Uh, so their linebacker, Micah Davey, had to have he had 68 total tackles last year. Yeah, which was second on the team. Because the first on the team graduated out. So yeah. that's their best tackler. 68's not even a lot of tackles. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. giving up a million points and 30 first downs, you might have 200 tackles by the end of the year. Who knows? Either way, Alan, safe to say, Florida's offense should hopefully score some points in this yes. game. Yes. Um, they will not provide much in the way of, uh, I don't know, trying to stop Florida. So we'll have to see. Does Florida's execution look good? Do they do what they're supposed to do? Because they probably will be able to. And we'll get a lot of reps on punt return. They punted eight times last week versus a team they scored 30-something points on. So maybe they punt 14 times this week. Who knows? So we don't have any information about injuries or things like that at this point when we're recording. So Kingsley obviously didn't play last week. If I was a coach, I'd probably hold him out again this week. Maybe give him a couple snaps, but you don't need him to beat McNeese State. Um, and we don't know really anything else about injuries. It didn't seem like anybody was injured in the previous game, so hopefully full slate of people are available to go. That is good news there. Right, game prediction, keys to the game. We're skipping over. There are no actual keys to the game. I do want your prediction, Alan, along with the two things you want to see most. Mm-hmm. So I think we will come out and run the ball just to like erase some of the, like we gave our guys 10 carries again. I don't want to see them having a million carries and you know, our best two guys against McNeese state, but I think they do need some touches and they need some confidence rebuilt in our run game. So I would like to see them be very efficient and effective at running the ball. And then are we able to see the freshmen compete? Uh, I, I don't know about Andy Jean's health could mention him. Um, but do they get Mizell the ball in space and let him work and figure out some creative ways to get him the ball? And I don't know. I don't really have too many expectations for the defense. Maybe a few turnovers would be nice, considering they didn't generate any last week. And you want to give me a score as well? I want you to give a score, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll say <laughs> 56 to 13. Okay, I like that. All right. Uh, I'm going to say I expect a better run game, like you mentioned. I want. I want to see... Uh, things I can't wish for what I want to say, no, it's not going to happen. But on offense, I would like to see what you mentioned. Is I want to see the freshmen more involved. I want to see what we can do with them. And I want to see more touches, especially early on, like you mentioned, for who I think our most electric playmakers are. Because I think you're going to need them to feel good entering into Tennessee. This is sort of a make your playmakers feel good game. That's what I'm going to call it. I want to see the playmakers that we think are playmakers get a chance to make plays so their vibes are high entering into Tennessee. So playmakers make plays. On defense, I'm going to call it what I want to be at here. I want to see I want to see a shutout. Okay. I want to see it. I think if I'm Coach Ham, I'm a fired-up guy. I want to build off what we had last week. I want to be like, look, these guys should not score on you. It's an FCS program. I have some freaking pride. No one scores. Let's get a shutout. Wow. So I'm, I'm going to go for it. So even playing – Third string guys in the second half. Shut them out. It's a okay. program. Look, this is this is my defense. You know what happens? FCS teams don't score on my defense. Let's go. They don't score on your defense either because you're a part of it. So I'm going to go with the same total you have because mm-hmm. I want to be cheeky that way. 56 nothing for Florida. All right. All right. That's great. Week two slate. Are you ready for this? I am. So we don't have uh, 
rankings for any of these teams because the Clemson game tonight, they they do that. They don't Clemson. release them. It's garbage. Not that it matters because we have the teams here. It's all that matters. There we go. Just pick blind. All right, Utah beat Florida. Favored by, are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. This might surprise you. Only seven against a Baylor team on the road that just got smacked by Texas State. No Kim no. Rising and eight starters probably still missing. Yeah, that, that's the thing is can Baylor do some stuff to limit them? Um, I think I'm going to have to take Utah here considering the way Baylor looked, although I wouldn't touch this game. I didn't get to watch any of Baylor playing, but that, I mean, for a guy who's known for defense, give up 43 points? Ah, man, I don't know. Seven points on the road with eight starters missing. I'll take Utah, I guess. Take the proven program. Nebraska on the road at Colorado. Colorado... This is a shocking favorite. They would have never been a favorite had last week not happened based upon roster. No, if this was the first game of the season, they would have probably been double-digit 100% double-digit underdogs. Nebraska more talented. Colorado favored by three. Can Colorado do this twice in a row, or is that a fluke here, Alan? Well, we'll see by the end of the year if TCU's defense was just paper thin. I expect Colorado's not going undefeated. But this Nebraska team, I don't know. Um, I do not have a feeling in this either way. I'm going to have to take Colorado, I guess. You got to love this because you have first-year Dion versus first-year Matt Rule, who was an NFL coach and very successful in college. And if Dion gets him on a W, whew, man, I'm taking Colorado, too. I'm not going to bet against Prime until so Prime Nebraska, gives me a reason to bet on him. Nebraska's offense still has a lot of work to do. Yes. They didn't turn the whole roster over wisely like Dion did. That's their fault. Ole Miss favored by seven at Tulane. Now, Tulane, mm. if you've been under a rock ridiculously good season last year very highly thought of this year hence why Ole Miss is only favored by seven this is one of the games of the weekend for me yeah I, they're not sneaking up on anybody I think Ole Miss has been getting ready for this they obviously I'm sure did not prepare against Mercer or whoever they played I, I'll go Ole Miss here yeah that's a smart pick but you know what the SEC has come out sus as can be <laughs> to start this year so I'm gonna ride that sus wave and I'm gonna take Tulane in seven points all right A&M also, perhaps surprising line favored only by four at Miami. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I don't like either any of this game. I have no idea what to expect here. On the road, A and M. I don't trust them, but I guess I will take them as the more talented team. Yeah, I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take Bobby Petrino. It's a Bobby Petrino bet right here for me with A and M. All okay. right, Iowa favored by four over Iowa State Ooh. early on week two action here for this matchup. Yeah, this is usually where it is. El Asico, um, not El Clasico. Oh man, I don't. I don't have any data on Iowa State. I don't know what to expect from them. But you love them. I do love them. I, you know, let's just do it clones come on if you don't put the clones it's not right i mean it wouldn't be right. i mean uh, this is gonna take the under whatever it is yeah 20 who knows <laughs> i will also take the clones because why not smu on the road at oklahoma oklahoma favored by 16 and a half new acc member smu yeah I, again this is so tough picking these early on i don't know what to think about oklahoma yet i think i'll learn more in this game but i'll, I'll take them here yeah i was playing a four-day pickleball tournament which that's a thing i didn't know it was a thing so i missed a lot of college football on saturday well there's not a lot of data there no anyway. but i mean it's 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 hard i just like to see something uh i'm gonna take oklahoma because i picked them to have a bounce back season this year cincinnati at Pitt. Pitt favored by eight can emory jones do it again Right, he had a bunch of touchdowns. He did. 
Uh, I'm not buying it. I'll take Pitt. I am not buying it either. All right. UCF, three and a half, favored over Boise State. Boise got, got slaughtered. Smoked. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to take UCF here. Just that Boise result scared me a little bit. I took them right. last week against Washington and yeah. got you know hammered there. They're playing at home. UCF all the way across the country. I'll take Boise State on the blue I turf. hope you're right. Arizona at Mississippi State. What a weird matchup. So weird. Mississippi State favored by 10. 10. Does that feel like a lot? That seems like a lot. Arizona's like a trendy pick to have an improvement, an improved year this year. I'll take Arizona then. Okay, I like that. I mean, again, the SEC has been sus, and until proven otherwise, I'm fading them early on. All right, I'm taking Arizona too. Stanford at USC, where USC is favored by a healthy 29 and a half. Stanford looked a little frisky last week. They they they've totally changed their identity. They're now a little offense forward. Um, I still think USC is just a juggernaut offensively. I think th- this game will probably be again like 58, 28, something like that. And I'll, I'll take USC. Yeah. I like it too, especially it's the rivalry factor of this a little bit here. So I feel like there's more incentive to put it on them some, uh, but either way, that's the Lincoln rally effect right there, man. You get 30 point spreads pretty quickly. Auburn favored by six and a half on the road at Cal. We are picking a lot of, Pac-12 games this week. Pac-12 is interesting. Give me Auburn here. I, I know Cal hired a new ace, OC. They looked a little bit better, but I think Auburn's going to take care of business. Yeah, I like that line a lot. I'm on Auburn too. Oregon at Texas Tech. Texas Tech, by the way, lost last yes, week. Yes, they lost to Wyoming, to who's Wyoming. been quietly one of the more consistent programs. Solid. We finally a, got a big win there. We've profiled them on the pod before. Oregon's only favored by six and a half. I, I think people are still kind of high on Texas Tech. Uh, I'll take Oregon, though, though. This feels super fishy. Something about that line feels really bad. It feels insane. Six and a half? I'm on Oregon, too. Texas at Alabama, where Bama is favored by seven. What a matchup. Matchup of the weekend here. Great mm. game last year. Our boy Josh Covey. It's Texas Longhorns. Welcome. He's feeling it. He's feeling the hype. He's feeling the juice. I don't love this Alabama team, and I have a lot of question marks about Texas. I think this is going to be a really fun game. I wish this number was six and a half for me for Alabama. That would be a lot easier, but I'll go ahead and take Bama. Oh, well, you know that whatever I do with Texas is wrong. (laughs) So I'm going to pick Alabama. Okay. Because I would like Texas to win. I don't like Texas, but you know, Bama's won enough and Texas will trip up elsewhere. Uh, But I also do think that in in general, Steve Sarkeesian never won 10 games in a season. Of course, he wants to beat the master and Nick Saban. I'm not so sure he's ready for that just yet on the road. So I will take Bama. All right, we're back to Daytona Steve. Week two bets. Notre Dame at NC State. He's got a $30 bet put on them at minus seven. Notre Dame at NC State, $30 bet minus seven. Oregon at Texas Tech, $20 there for an even money line with the spread. So Oregon at six and a half or seven at Texas Tech. And Alabama minus four at the half versus Texas, a $10 bet there. So he's got 30 on Notre Dame, 20 on Oregon. 10 on Alabama leading at halftime. If you are interested in getting some of Daytona Steve's action, there you go. It is excellent work. Any other items from you, Alan? I don't think so. I love having college football back. I mean, week one, there wasn't much to watch. I'm really glad that Colorado game was fun because that was the only game on, but we're starting to, we're starting to get some fun matchups here. A lot of intersectional stuff and that Bama Texas game is going to be fascinating no matter the result. 
Yeah, this is where I feel like it's nice for both of us. Someone asked me over the weekend, like, is it really discouraging when Florida's not good at football to do the podcast? And I said, you know, actually, no, I love it just as much as when we're really good. It's There's always something to dive into and talk about strategically. And we hope you enjoy the pod for that reason, too. But as I've gotten older, I just love football. And I've talked about this before. And I'm thankful that with each passing year, Florida's success or failure does not diminish my enjoyment of football because I just love the sport. It does make it better when Florida's good because it's more exciting, but it does not diminish it. Like there's a floor level that's always there for football. And I just enjoyed the heck out of watching it. Like on Saturday, I thoroughly enjoyed watching Colorado TCU. The fact that Florida was horrific on Thursday did not ruin my enjoyment of that football. Game. And the NFL is back. NFL's back, which I love. All right, give me give me your prediction on the Dolphins. Give me your do they Ooh. make the playoffs, win in the division? Man, you know that division to be tough with Aaron Rodgers there with the Jets now. Uh, the Bills obviously fire, and the Dolphins with the good rosters. They're three really good rosters. I am not a believer in in Tua. Um, I just have not been in the NFL. Not just because he gets injured. I think there's reasons to believe that although he has some nice stats on him uh i don't know that he's a guy that can that can get it done all season long like an aaron Rodgers or a josh allen so i think on paper it looks to me like the bills and the jets are the one two in that division the dolphins are a very close third so making the playoffs is going to be a challenge um but I, I've got the Dolphins sitting just outside the playoffs, which would be a, a failure for a team I think with as much talent as they have. But the NFL is largely divisional-based. If your division is hard, you're in trouble. you got to play. That's four games against those opponents right there. Dolphins go, you know, let's say, <clears throat> 9 and 8. Do they make the playoffs in the AFC? I don't think so. It's not good enough. they got to get 10 wins. So I'm not so sure that happens. Now let me throw that at you. The Jags, obviously, sky-high expectations. Let's go. Much friendlier division than what the Dolphins play in. What do you got going on here? Yeah, I think they're going to win the division fairly easily. I mean, Tennessee, I think, will be like solid again. Vrabel's a really good coach. But I think it's going to be a top five offense, and the defense will do enough. And maybe if we get some leaps from some of these second-year players like Trevon Walker and Devin Lloyd, that maybe this team like really goes up a notch, but we'll see. That's probably just in the, you know, that's all gravy at that point. Of course they make the playoffs if they win the division and yeah, I could not be more excited about it. And if you're looking for a good Jaguars podcast, you can check out GNFB longtime legend, JT Raymond and his brothers doing a podcast called the Jag bros podcast. I've been listening. It's been fun watching them, uh, you know, kind of, have fun with the Jaguars, having fun with themselves, and they're on it. They're moving. Yeah, one of the most fun things about that podcast is how they play a game seemingly every week with JT about guessing his comments from the past mm-hmm. about which game it, it relates to, which if you know JT, it's impossible. They're all like over-the-top, absurdly emphatic statements, and, and him trying to guess them is pretty awesome too because <laughs> I don't know how you parse they're, that out. So they're a good mix of uh, analytical, but I will also say JT is often the voice of reason on the podcast too. So that gives you a little hint. His brothers are also JT-ish in there, some of their uh, passion. So check that out if you're a Jack fan. I love it, man. That's too great. JT is going to be more than stoked that you just gave him a plug for that. Uh, I can assure you that. All right. Well, with that, we have come to the end of, I guess, almost a Megasode. I think we used to call things over two hours a Megasode, but now we say things over three hours are a Megasode. So this is something in between an episode and a Megasode. 
whatever you want to call that. Create a name for it. But lots to talk about. Lot to talk about. Hopefully, you didn't feel like we dove too far into the offensive defense, but we felt like it was sort of a watershed moment here. So we really spent a lot of time analyzing it. As always, if you have any thoughts, feedback, suggestions, hit us up at the pod. We look forward to hearing from you. And we'll be back with you each and every week throughout the season. Next week to break down McNeese and then obviously talk about the upcoming huge matchup, Allen, thereafter. So should be a blast. Hopefully Florida's offense will score more than one touchdown. And we'll have, you know, fun stuff to talk about next week. Until then, enjoy the week. Enjoy the football. We will be back with you before you know it. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.